All right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to today's episode of the Chris and Paul Show. As always, I'm here with my buddy, Chris Beardsley. Chris, uh, I'm really excited about today's show because I I got a lot of commentary about the last podcast that we did that I talked too much and like talked over you and blah, blah, blah. And I think that is because, as we were just discussing um, before the show started, was that I've heard so much crap over the last couple of weeks and months about the length and partials uh, garbage that I just wanted to rant, I guess, for a while. But today we're going to have a flip, a little bit of a flip side of that. So I'm going to be able to shut up and just kind of let you go off on some tangents. We are going to be talking about your one of your favorite subjects that gets you going. Um, and I'm going to let people see how you actually get going because, I'm just like I said, I'm going to toss you out some softballs today and let you start rolling. I'm going to antagonize you a little bit. We're going to be talking about training to true, muscular, esoteric, esoteric eccentric, um, existential failure. Okay, sounds good. I should probably... Uh... <laughs> I should probably end up you, rising to debate you take Prozac time. before we get started on today's episode, so that way you can be composed, because you actually, you'll get red sometimes when we're talking about this. This topic really riles you up, so I want people to see the real, the real Chris Beardsley today, because this is this is actually a topic that legitimately gets you frustrated at times. Is that a fair statement? It is a fair statement, and it's it's a fair statement because the um, it's one of those areas where the 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 topic is actually very straightforward. Once you understand some very, very simple uh, physiological concepts, the concept of or the the, uh, the problem of how muscular failure happens um, and what it's doing uh, is actually very simple. Uh, and we actually overcomplicate it in the fitness industry or, or it is overcomplicated in the fitness industry because people aren't actually taking the time just to do this very basic uh, bit of reading to understand you know, the, the background of how fatigue is happening and how failure is actually happening. So I think the reason I'm frustrated is because um, people are just missing the fact that this is a lot simpler than they are making it out to be. I think the reason why the whole failure discussion has come back to um, like kind of the forefront like it has is a few reasons is that we had the meta-analysis and regression that happened over the past year, right, that talked about if you needed to train to failure. And then we had some people saying 3RIR was just good as failure, which is absolute bullshit. And then we had some people saying that the the meta-analysis showed training to failure was much more effective, which is also kind of bullshit. All of those things needed nuance and context, and then and everybody's rush to kind of be, I was right, they actually missed the commonalities that was found both in the meta regression analysis and that you and I have covered actually a multitude of times. And that if you're training to failure, the context is needed as to whether or not it's more productive. Heavier loads with lower reps probably don't need, probably won't. Something I've said lately, somebody got back to me and said, why don't you make up your mind? I'm like, I all have made up my mind. If you're training with heavier loads, it's not quite as important to actually train to test failure. If you're training with lighter loads, it's a little bit more important to train test failure. And all of that comes back to the stuff that we've discussed a multitude of times, motor unit recruitment and mechanical tension. So um, the, the other th- the reason why the other part is that this whole failure discussion has brought a lot of the old Mike Mentor stuff back from the seventies, kind of up to like two, that's really popular to talk about now. And then anytime you have something rise to the top, there's going to be people that are be going to be contrary. And there's lots of people that are like, Mike Mentor didn't know shit, which is not true. Mike got a lot of stuff right for a guy that didn't have the access to the same data that we had 
uh, back in the 70s, he got a lot of things very correct. He got some things very wrong, and that's perfectly okay. But he definitely, I, I would say, was ahead of his time on a lot of these topics about volume and training to failure and a lot of those things. Like some of his old clips are, are really good. Some are inherently just like, well, okay, that's completely wrong. But again, that's okay. But if we're talking about failure, he talked about failure a lot and the need for hitting failure. Um, why it's you know so much better to to go to failure and stuff and we're going to talk about I, I, what that has done in some ways i think has complicated this landscape of talking about failure and like you said actually talking about failure is pretty simple but people have made this more complicated than it really is yeah exactly and one of the examples of or one of the ways in which we see that complication that overcomplication, that that complexity appearing, is in the definitions. So people are running around saying, you know, we now need to. I mean, just in the research space, for example, in the research space, people are now starting to want to redefine muscular failure as, for example, momentary muscular failure. They've created a new definition because they want to distance themselves from the muscular failure uh, terminology that's being used, um, whether it's in exercise science or or in the fitness industry, because they want to kind of specify that it is not some kind of you know dramatic event where the muscle is you know kind of being disintegrated or you know some horrendous kind of you know final uh, no, no, there's a word for that that one is called true true well, muscular failure again so like on, on the one side in the research community we've got people adopting um sort of these new terminologies to try and distance themselves from the older terminologies and create a, a better framework for themselves. And then, and I'll talk about that later on and why I think that's misguided. Right. Uh, yep. And then, and then secondly, as you've just pointed out, you've got exactly the same phenomenon happening in the fitness industry where people are trying to coin these new uh, phrases like true muscular failure, true muscular failure, peripheral failure, or whatever they're trying to use. It doesn't really matter. The point is Mechanical. that you can Mechanical, mechanical failure. failure is another one, another great one. Again, I would interpret that to, again, mean something destructive. But um, the, the issue here, and, and think, I think these are basically signs that the topic is not well understood. The topic is not well understood. We don't have a popular uh, kind of support for a basic physiological model that everybody is uh, is kind of using in commonality with each other. I think there should be one. I, th I think we can explain one and, and, and that people should be using it, but they aren't doing. And yeah. ultimately, I think this these are symptoms. These these coining of new phrases um, or this coining of new phrases is, 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 is just a symptom of the fact that the topic is not well defined, it's not well understood, and people aren't actually using basic physiology to explain what's going on, which we hope to obviously do today. Right. So as very, very quick bits of background that I, I emailed you about before the, the podcast, and I said I wanted to just do these very quickly. Um, I'd like to just define fatigue. I'd like to define a little bit about fatigue and explain a little bit about how it works, because obviously we need to do that kind of background. And I don't want to do the fatigue podcast again, obviously, because we've done fatigue podcasts. I was going to ask you, you don't want to do a fatigue podcast all over again? I mean, it would be obviously my pleasure to talk about fatigue for two hours, but um, obviously we can't do that because people will stop I was listening. So, but I can. I think it's important to discuss fatigue, and here's why. And I'll quickly go over some of the stuff. So, I asked people in my story, you and I talked, you know, as a side note, you said, ask your followers how they define failure. And we kind of went through like how we're going to phrase that and whatever. So, believe it or not, quite a few of them got the definition correct. And then I said, let me press a little more. 
and you were happy about that. And I said, let me impress a little more and see if they understand. So when I asked them, what does that mean? When they would guess correctly, because they would just use the term, and I think they're just using sound bites, right? And they are. And when I would say, what does that mean? They couldn't explain it from there, right? So they just took a sound bite and said, here's the explanation for why, what task failure is, why it happens. And I would say, expound on that. So then what's that part? And then they couldn't, um, for the most part. So then the other part that came up a lot was there was some confusion between what I would see people as they're confusing fatigue. They, they kind of intermix these issues with fatigue with failure. And then I think the third one is most people do not understand particular interference mechanisms and how they impact what causes task failure. That is the other thing, because they call all of these other things failure when I'm like, that's just an interference mechanism, or that's something that contributes to actually why we have task failure occurring. So we're going to go over all of those things, but, but the fact is, there's just one reason why failure occurs. I, I want to preface this whole thing with the fact that people can try to make this a more complicated issue, but when you actually break apart all the physiology here there's just one thing there's just one thing absolutely and that's kind of what i alluded to at the beginning um when i said this whole discussion of about about failure is is very simple the answer to it is very very simple we'll get to that um, but as i said some quick bits of background fatigue very very quickly fatigue is um a temporary and reversible reduction in exercise performance as a result of some preceding exercise bouts or repetitions that we've done. So what we're saying is that as we perform a series of repetitions, um, fatigue is going to happen. It's going to be measurable. We're going to see reductions in our capacity to produce, for example, force or to move to certain velocity, whatever parameter we're measuring, it doesn't really matter. Um, but we're going to see reductions in exercise performance happening over time. So that is what fatigue is defined as. The fatigue mechanisms are the processes inside the body that cause that to occur so when we're breaking down that kind of that that fatigue uh, concept the fatigue concept is an outcome it's something that we're measuring changing it's not actually what's happening inside the body the fatigue mechanism is what's happening inside the body and i've yes. i've talked about the difference between mechanisms and outcomes before in terms of things like strength and speed and power and those kind of things but ultimately when we're talking about fatigue we're again dealing with an outcome that's underpinned by these mechanisms and when we're talking about fatigue mechanisms we can be talking about ones that are central nervous system based or we could be talking about ones that are locally uh, or peripherally muscular uh, mechanisms of fatigue so we've got these various different mechanisms now as you pointed out earlier they're basically interfering with the normal way in which we operate they are essentially interfering with our ability to produce or, or send a central motor command from the brain to the muscle or they're interfering with our ability to produce the processes inside the muscle that ultimately lead to cross bridge formations and uh, the way in which those cross bridges are forming. So we're changing things that are normal operating processes and we're making them essentially less effective. And that is causing a reduction in our ability to do those repetitions. Now, essentially, those are fatigue mechanisms. They don't actually um, kind of tell us exactly how failure is happening, but they tell us they are going to be contributing to us getting to a point where we're going to reach uh, failure or we're going to fail to continue to do repetitions. So let's now take that extra step and say, well, okay, well, what is causing us to reach failure? How do, how do we know that we're stopping or how do we know how it is or why it is that we're stopping a set when we get to a certain critical point? Now, basically, 
this is one of those things that we, we can deduce relatively easily because as we track our progression through those repetitions, what's going to happen is that we are going to obviously experience peripheral fatigue mechanisms. And at the same time, we are going to be increasing our level of central motor command in the brain to compensate for the fatigue that's happening locally. So we are introducing the activation of new muscle fibers to compensate for the ones that no longer can produce the force necessary in order to continue doing the set. If we look at that process and we watch that process happening, as the increase in the central motor command occurs, that's creating the increase in recruitment, creating the increase in muscle fiber activation, it simultaneously increases our perception of effort. Now, this is very well known. I mean, people have talked about the connection between RPE and uh, reps in reserve for a very long period of time, and it's justified because essentially as we progress from the early reps of a set to the later reps of the set, we start to experience an increase in our perception of effort. That's happening because we are increasing our motor unit recruitment levels. And at a certain point, we're going to reach our maximum, what we call our maximum tolerable perception of effort. Everybody has a maximum tolerable perception of effort that they can't go beyond. And what that means is they've got a certain level of central motor command that they can't go beyond either. Now, the really important piece of information that most people don't um, kind of introduce at this point. Most people are kind of following along at this point going, yeah, that makes sense. But the important thing to remember is that this maximum level of central motor command might not be sufficient to actually activate every single muscle fiber in the muscle that you're training. In fact, in 90% of cases, it probably is not. Um, this is how we when, we, when we measure this in muscles, we can measure something called the voluntary activation percentage. It's yep. basically an indicator of the number of muscle fibers that you're capable of activating. At we your are maximum. capable. We yeah. are capable. That exactly. we are capable, and that's a really important distinction. Absolutely. At a maximum level of, uh, of, of effort that we prepared to tolerate, that's, that's going to still actually be not quite the, the, the level of force that you are theoretically capable of generating if you are able to push your maximum effort perception even higher. Yeah, so we, and that, we, there's, yeah. there's, there's always, even if you're going as hard as you can, just so people understand this concept, because one of the ones that, that, that does come up, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I'm sure we got it, is people say, well, you reach failure when you're incapable of those muscles producing force. And I'm like, actually, that that's not it, because um, you don't, there's always a motor unit deficit degree there's always a deficit in motor motor unit recruitment we don't we can't actually get a hundred percent of full motor unit recruitment on our own from voluntary effort absolutely not and and just to be clear though this isn't one of those things that's that's absolutely set in stone i mean this is modifiable if if your motivation levels are lower or higher as you're going into a set you will experience slight differences in the level of voluntary activation that you can achieve there are variances in this it is absolutely movable and as we'll talk about later it's movable over time and it varies between people and situations and all those kind of things but the important thing that we're saying here is that as we reach that failure point in a set it's absolutely not happening because the muscle can't you know continue uh, performing the exercise if we were in a theoretical scenario where we were capable of like introducing an electrical stimulus yep. to that muscle locally at the point when we were coming to the end of a set of repeated contractions isometrics or dynamics or whatever they may be then we we, we should be able to actually extend that set and produce more repetitions with that muscle force you know that we've uh, actually currently not tapping into because or the muscle fibers that we're not tapping into because the brain has essentially stopped us before we can get to the uh, actual what we might call local peripheral muscular failure point we don't reach 
uh, failure because the muscle isn't incapable of producing force at the level that we need to to lift the weight. We reach failure because the brain basically says that's the maximum level of effort that I'm prepared to tolerate. And this is applicable pretty much in every situation. And as we'll talk yeah. about later, we're going to show that essentially it doesn't matter what scenario you're imagining, this is always how it works. Exactly. So, okay. I think you covered the the kind of the definition of fatigue and the reason why we had to do that is because I, as I said, when I asked this, there was a lot of conversations where I felt like people were getting fatigue mixed up with task failure. And I think you've, you've probably dealt with that as well, right? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, obviously it's uh, one of those things that is, 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 is not the easiest thing to, to separate right. because fatigue mechanisms are contributing. So, Let's let's do this one. So, what fatigue mechanisms occur over a normal strength strength training set? Let's say we're doing a set of, we'll do these kind of um, hypothetical situation. I'm going to do a set of 15 reps, and I, I'm going to try to train to true muscular failure, existential, eccentric, esoteric, ecumenical failure, um, yeah, okay. ecumenical, um, <laughs> whatever. Uh, yeah, failure. I was there. Had one more on me. I, I was. That would have been funny, but I, I can't remember what it was. Um, but any of those types of failure that I'm going to get to, because again, there's a multitude of types of failure, and you have to get to a one where the the clearly the fibers are dead. You can't move. There's a type of comatose paralysis, something that sets into where you you can't move. That's what when I talk to these kids on TikTok, there to them, there's like a degree of failure where you like your. I guess you can't move your body. Um, and that's the true failure. So if I'm going to a set of 15 reps and I'm going to get to um, to failure, then what are the fatigue mechanisms that occur? So the reason why I bring this up is because if we're doing a set of, of say, five reps with a five rep max, there that's different than doing a set of 15 with a 15 rep max. So if I'm doing a set of 15 reps, what are the, the mechanisms that occur over that? that 15 reps set that caused me to hit failure so in the um sort of lighter load territory we've got pretty much a full house of all the possible fatigue mechanisms that we can think of um, so at the muscular level we can divide those into metabolite related which generally fall into the category of phosphates and acidosis um, in terms of the and the other category would then be calcium unrelated and we've got calcium unrelated fatigue mechanisms happening at three locations they're happening at the triadic junction which is where excitation contraction coupling failure takes place happening at the cell membrane where we've got reductions in the excitability of that membrane i think that's again due to um sort of the uh, sort of it's a, a knock-on effect of the mechanism that's really occurring regarding the triadic junction so it's part and parcel of the same thing and then you've got a reduction in my fibrilla uh, sensitivity to calcium ions. So we've got these two different groups of peripheral mechanism. Um, broadly speaking, the metabolite mechanisms aren't really having that much effect on the muscle fiber force, the tension, whereas the calcium amylated fatigue mechanisms are. And they're also responsible for post-workout fatigue. Now, I'm not going to, again, repeat the previous podcast about muscle damage and fatigue and all that <laughs> kind of thing, but basically those calcium amylated fatigue mechanisms are only really going to affect, uh, oh, sorry, are going to be responsible for the for the post-workout fatigue. Um, so basically, we've got these two groups of peripheral fatigue mechanisms. It's a lot more complicated than that when we get into the actual detail of them, but broadly speaking, that's how we can categorize them. Yeah. Um, at the systemic level, the central, central nervous system level, we've obviously got two mechanisms. We've got the brain level uh, mechanism, and then we've got the, the spine level mechanism. In terms of the brain, what we're dealing with here is that any 
additional any additional kind of source of pain or discomfort is going to cause us to experience a reduction in the level of motor unit recruitment we can achieve for a given level of effort perception. So essentially, what we're going to imagine is that you've got um, a central motor command that's uh, kind of being produced in order to increase the level of motor unit recruitment. We increase that central motor command in order to access more and more motor units. Simultaneously, we're increasing the perception of effort because the two things are linked. But if you start sticking in extra sources of pain and discomfort that are coming from other places, let's say cardiovascular system, or let's say metabolites in the muscle are causing a burning sensation. These, start, are, interfer- these are the interference. These are, yeah, these are going to cause an increase in our perceived level of effort without yes. actually adding anything to the recruitment level that we're trying to attain. So what happens is you kind That's of... That's a really... Don't rush through that part. That's a really important distinction for people to understand is that the when the interference mechanisms occur, there's nothing also essentially able to increase that degree of murder recruitment except our own voluntary effort, right? Yeah, I mean, just imagine imagine some really simple numbers. You know, imagine that you've kind of got, you know, um, ten obviously 10 units of RPE available to you, or let's yep. call, divide that, you know, yeah, 10 units of RPE. Yeah. And let me say we've got 10 units of central motor command that we can reach. And so what we're trying to do is hit that 10... Tenth unit of central motor command and, and max out our current level of recruitment as far as we're able to do. Obviously, within the context of what I explained earlier, which is that still we're still going to have a voluntary activation deficit. We're never going to actually get every single muscle fiber, but just as much as we can, cost as you know, habitually achieve. Yeah. So if we then come along and start adding units of effort from or pain or discomfort from you know say the fact that i'm now breathing hard because i'm starting to get into the high rep territory or because my muscles are now starting to hurt because i've got that metabolite accumulation i'm now adding maybe one unit of cardiovascular discomfort to my perception of effort uh, and i'm adding another unit from the metabolite burning sensations i'm now only getting when i get to 10 units of effort perception i'm only getting to eight units now of my central motor command because I've got two units coming from these painful, discomforting sensations that I'm experiencing. And so I don't max out central motor command and therefore I don't max out recruitment, even though I'm hitting that maximum level of uh, effort perception at the end of the set. So this is one of those really important things that when people talk about um, kind of light load training to failure, uh, kind of being the same, exactly the same as heavy load uh, strength training in terms of motor unit recruitment. This is basically why that's not correct. And we, I mean, we know it's not correct from just basic measurements of recruitment in, in high force and low force activities. But, you know, also we can see why it's not correct. It's not correct because these perceptions of effort and pain discomfort are actually inhibiting our ability to max out central motor command and therefore recruitment at the same time as maxing out effort perception. So, you know, there's a really funny analogy for this. So if you th- you think about, you know, like kind of maxing out your motor unit recruitment, it's almost like if you're like out in a social setting and you see a really beautiful woman. And it, to me, a removing those interference mechanisms would be like if she doesn't have that ugly friend with her because you go up to talk to her. If she's got that ugly friend with her, she's the interference mechanism. She will usually try to get between you and talking to the, the beautiful woman and be like, she's not interested or whatever. She performs the interference mechanism. But if she doesn't have her, it's easier to actually, you know, go in and you have your, your chances, your 
repetitions where you can say get her number or whatever right but if she's got a multitude of friends that don't want you to get to her those represent the cardiovascular demands those represent the metabolite those are all the interference mechanisms that can show up right that can keep you from actually getting your number getting a date with her so forth and so on following up so those if you're doing them on the set of one to ten and you're trying to get to that that ten you know where you're maxing out motor unit recruitment the more interference mechanisms that you have the less of a chance you have to get her number less of a chance you have to max out your motor unit recruitment it's actually a perfect analogy here i am trying to educate people and you're trying really really hard to get us banned <laughs> i think people will find that funny um <laughs> So here's an interesting thing. The reason why I'm saying that, you'll, I think you'll like this, is that when you talk about, when we, you and I talk a lot about training heavier and kind of lower repetition ranges because we just remove the fatigue mechanisms. We just remove the interference mechanisms. So if you, you know, you bring your buddy with you and he can distract the rhino, then you have an easier chance to be able to talk to the beautiful woman without worrying about the interference mechanisms. So it's when you train with heavier loading and lower rep ranges, then you don't have the fatiguing interference mechanisms. You don't have the cardiovascular demands. You don't have the metabolite accumulation. You're turning red trying to not laugh at my jokes there with this are super funny, but it's, it's really, it's really, it's completely true. Right? So if you, if we're trying to get that, when we've talked about maxing out motor unit recruitment, our ability to recruit, to, to get to the higher thresholds of motor unit recruitment so we can really recruit those largest fiber types, it kind of is super important to us to not to have as few interference mechanisms as possible in order to do that. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, coming back to the physiology, yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> the, the um, you know, we call this supraspinal central nervous system fatigue, really, um, and and it and it's probably the most important form of of central nervous system fatigue. But there is obviously also spinal level central nervous system fatigue, which develops basically with increasing numbers of repetitions. It basically just is a transmission inhibitor. So the the more we perform repetitions, the the more the spinal uh, motor neurons start resisting the transmission of those signals. And so essentially, again, that's going to be greater with those lighter load sets with more repetitions we're going to get more of that spinal cord resistance and essentially what we're saying here is that the motor unit recruitment for a given level of central motor command is reduced well you know okay so um, the same problem is really occurring it's just occurring at a slightly different level but all of these fatigue mechanisms are contributing to the point uh, which basically for a given level of central motor command or for our current maximum level of central motor command we're not going to be able to continue performing the set which is the point at which we re reach failure but of course if we were capable of pushing our, our sort of uh, perceived effort levels slightly higher we would obviously be able to continue uh, further because we'll be able to bring on more muscle fibers into the equation and continue doing repetition so all of these fatigue mechanisms are happening and they're contributing to the point at which we're going to get to uh, the failure point uh, or they're contributing to us reaching that failure point but they're not actually the uh, critical event or critical step in the process that causes us to reach failure which is hitting our maximum tolerable perception of effort so the the way that you're kind of explaining this is that you you have when you start a set you kind of have this when you think of a signal from the brain it's it's of a particular size and then as all of these other interference mechanisms start happening as we have a metabolite accumulation 
as we have cardiorespiratory demands, or we have other things come into play, that signal starts to shrink. Well, the maximum possible size that the signal can be will shrink. But if you're starting a set uh, with a self-selected tempo, then generally speaking, this, the signal will actually be quite low to start with, and it'll rise right. throughout the set. The, the maximum capacity for that signal will drop, absolutely. Um, but yeah, generally, if we start to set with a, a kind of a self-selected tempo, what will generally happen is the signal will climb to task failure. If you're performing the set with explosive repetitions, maximum effort on every repetition, absolutely, your first set will be the highest level of motor unit recruitment that you achieve anywhere in the set, and then it'll drop. And then it'll actually drop off. And that's absolutely. kind of a misunderstanding, right? So, if you're if you're using that kind of uh, what we call like time under tension, where you're raising the concentric portion of the rep, like five seconds and lowering five seconds, the super slow guys used to talk about that kind of stuff. You actually have a low degree of effort that you're beginning with. So you have actually a lower degree of motor unit recruitment. I try to explain motor unit recruitment to people in that very simplistic term and that you just have to look at your effort. Is your effort high or is your effort low? So yeah, you can't effort, have a high level of recruitment without a high level of effort. Right. You, your can, effort has to be you can have a high level of effort without a truly maximal level of recruitment. The other way around doesn't always work because of all those extra interference sensations that we were just talking about. Yeah, exactly. So if you started off with a light load and you were doing almost explosive concentrics, you would that would be the very start of the set where, where you would have the maximum amount of motor unit recruitment. And then as the set goes on, it would actually decline just slightly. But most people don't perform sets that way. They kind of perform sets in a way where it's almost like rhythmic, right? Like you're performing, raising and lowering the weight in kind sure. of a, a way that absolutely. feels kind of natural to you. Yeah, and absolutely. then over the yeah, and then over the course of the set, as the set starts to each repetition, the fatigue mechanism starts to accumulate, and the set begins to become difficult. People start to apply more effort, and that's the part I think people misunderstand. Is like, well, it's you get to decide if you're going to continue, and in order to continue, you have to increase your effort. And when you increase your effort, your motor your recruitment goes up, and it's really not more complicated than that. So that's why the super so guys used to say, well, by the end of the set to failure. Um, it doesn't matter because you have the same amount of motor unit recruitment anyway. And I'm like, yeah, that's not really true. That's 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 kind of a misunderstanding about motor unit recruitment. That's probably a different podcast or something another time because we're going to stick to the failure stuff. But the idea that you always end up with the same amount of motor unit recruitment is not really true. No, you end up that's with the same level of effort perception, but that yes. does not mean you get the same level of recruitment. Exactly. And that's a misunderstanding, I think, by those super slow hit guys that would say it's all the same by the end when you're hitting failure. And the light load strength training um, aficionados, the people who are like, you know, you can train with light loads and it doesn't matter. You get the same recruitment. Well, no, you don't. No, you don't. And that's actually kind of what the meta-analysis and regression was showing, too. The reason why we don't need to train to true test failure with heavier loads is because we have pretty much maximum motor, motor unit recruitment from the very first rep that we're going to get. Whereas with the other ones, you have to get very close to or train to. You have to train to failure in order to get very similar degrees of motor unit recruitment. So it's not the same. It's not a one-for-one -one relationship. No, not at all. Okay. So here's the other one that came up a lot. So we've kind of gone over the fatigue factor that fatigue plays a part. Fatigue is not failure, but fatigue plays a part in terms of mechanisms that cause us to reach task failure because we reach our maximal tolerable perception of effort. The other one that came up a lot that I was that, that people guessed a lot was um, was the ATP thing. So we're hitting on all cylinders here with things that tend to get you going. The idea. So this is the the energy deficit crisis that 
energy crisis hypothesis. Yes. Crisis hypothesis hypothesis that went on for a long time in a sense that people thought um, that you run out of ATP and then that's why and then even like one of, one of our friends said well if it has to be part of the ATP thing because otherwise sprinters could just keep running you know like maximal 100 meter sprints indefinitely you know without any rest or whatever and that that's a part of you know ATP needs time to be replenished this one is pretty wide it was guessed a lot the, the guess a lot that you run out of ATP so the idea again is that um, in order to fuel contractions, you need ATP, which is true, right? ATP plays a part um, in the energy demands uh, because you need uh, the, basically, I don't know how deep we want to get into this, but to remove the, um, the, the binding site um, from actin so that the myosin head can actually attach from it, you need an, a, a molecule from, from ADP to be converted to energy into ATP. And then that actually removes the tropomyosin um, from the, is it the tropo, the, yeah, the, the troponin, the tro troponin, tropomyosin, the, the chain, right, that exists there. So that has to be removed and that requires an energy, energy molecule. So ATP plays a part in allowing uh, the myosin to attach the actin binding site. So that way contraction can occur. So do when we're doing contractions and we have high intensity contractions where we have a slow contraction velocity velocity, do we run out of ATP? Do we do we just do, do, do we need that that minute or two minutes or three minutes so that ATP can be replenished so that way we have um, energy to fuel contractions? Yeah, I think you're probably right about this. This probably frustrating me even more than the kind of the, the muscular failure debate. Um, so, yeah, the energy crisis hypothesis goes back a very, very long time, probably mm -hmm. to the almost beginnings of of kind of modern exercise science. And basically, it's predicated on these early sort of studies that show that as we uh, kind of perform long um, bouts of exercise, we tend to see uh, things like uh, muscle glycogen and blood glucose dropping at the same rate as um, fatigue occurring. So there's a logical idea that we're kind of running out of this fuel supply and ATP has to be the final link in the chain. If ATP is not changing... ATP is not changing inside a muscle fiber, then basically all of your other fuel and uh, ideas have to be thrown out the window. Because uh, if your ATP levels are kind of uh, independent of, of your fuel supplies, then you can't really say that fuel supply uh, is a limiting factor in exercise performance, because it, well, at least at the muscle fiber level, because obviously it's not changing the ATP supply. So it's really, really critical kind of step in that in that hypothesis. Now. Not that long ago, um, in, in exercise science terms, um, we kind of uh, learned that ATP levels don't change inside muscle fibers during aerobic exercise. And more recently, they don't change uh, in muscle fibers during strength training exercise either. I know that some people who've kind of um, commented uh, when, I've, when I've made this point online have said, oh, but it does change in strength training. No, it absolutely doesn't. So ATP levels are, are staying pretty much the same. Now, the, the way I interpret this is is actually that if ATP levels were to drop, that would be pretty uh, kind of catastrophic for the muscle fibers. Yes. Muscle fibers need um, kind of energy in order just to operate. Well, the whole body basically runs off ATP for energy. 
so you, we need that ATP inside the fiber, otherwise the muscle fiber will probably uh, kind of uh, go necrotic. And there's some really nice data showing kind of how ATP deficits do actually start triggering necrosis occurring inside muscle fibers. So it seems fairly logical that that, that, that process, uh, you know, would occur if we actually allowed ATP levels to drop inside muscle fibers, you know, in fatiguing situations. The other side of it is to say, well, actually, if you look closely at all of our fatigue mechanisms, especially the peripheral ones, they actually happen in a way that stops us running out of ATP. So just for example, look at the phosphate thing, which is uh, the point you were sort of alluding to just a moment ago. As we use ATP and convert it into ADP phosphate and some energy to drive sort of the crossbridge cycle processes, what's happening there is that we're building phosphates on one side of a reaction, which is actually reversible. So we've got our uh, kind of ATP reaction that converts into ADP and a phosphate. And as we build phosphates on that side, we start to basically make it a lot harder to take ATPs and convert them into ADP, phosphate and energy. So it starts to slow that reaction down. Eventually it stops it and it could potentially go back the other way and reverse it, start making ATP instead. Now, ultimately, what that means is that as we accumulate phosphates, which is a very, very well described phenomenon that occurs inside muscle fibers uh, during fatigue and contractions, what we're actually doing is we're stopping ourselves using the ATP that we've got as a store. So we're actually, the fatigue mechanism is preventing us from using the ATP we've got available to us. It's shutting it off and preventing us from using it. That's not going to allow ATP to run out because we're actually, the fatigue mechanism itself is stopping us doing that. Now, for various reasons, acidosis does something very similar. Um, calcium ion accumulation, calcium ion related fatigue mechanisms also do exactly the same thing because they stop cross-bridge cycles from happening. Exactly. Cross-bridge cycles are the primary sort of usage point of uh, ATP. Uh, the excitation contraction coupling process is another key uh, user of ATP. Calcium amylate fatigue mechanisms are going to stop those processes from happening completely and stop us using ATP. So ultimately, the idea, as soon as somebody says to me, oh, well, ATP is reducing and therefore that's causing fatigue. As soon as they say that, I just know they haven't read any of the fatigue literature <laughs> at all. Um, you know, because if you'd read some of it, you would know that the fatigue mechanisms are stopping us using the ATP that we've got. And obviously, we can actually build ATP, if anything. Uh, so you were getting there with the calcium iron related fatigue. It's such an interesting concept, right? Because once the action potential, right, for sitting down from the nervous, from the brain to the nervous system, you know, into the actual, the triadic junction, once that, what we call the bolus center, once it can no, no longer communicate with calcium ion store, there's, we're just not going to get contraction at those fibers because like there's, there has to be a communication between that action potential and the calcium ions that are responsible, right, for creating muscular contraction. So when you have that massive influx, or you have, a, 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 I don't know if we'd say it's massive, we, we see excitation contraction coupling failure happen even without having like without a massive overload of intracellular calcium. But once that happens, we don't have a problem with ATP. We have plenty of ATP. We just simply do not have contraction occurring at, those, at, at the, the fiber level due to that inability to have a communication between the action potential and the calcium ion store. So it can't be because there's an ATP problem. It is simply because we have a calcium ion problem. Yeah, I mean, fatigue is, in my opinion, never, um, is never limited, never created, sorry. The fatigue mechanisms are never created ultimately by deficits in fuel. They can be de they can be 
triggered by our brain interpreting or uh, muscle fibers signaling about the, the 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 lack of fuel supply so that, that that's a separate concept so for example we can get um supraspinal central nervous system fatigue as we were talking about earlier from obviously things like the cardiovascular perceptions and from uh, perceptions of the muscle fibers um, sorry the metabolites accumulating muscle we can get um so supraspinal central nervous system fatigue from low muscle glycogen or low blood glucose because yep. the, the brain basically is detecting that and creating um, a perception of effort associated with that low fuel supply that's not the fuel supply itself strangling the supply of energy into the muscle fiber the energy crisis hypothesis which is the one that's very very widely repeated across huge portions of the internet is the idea that we sort of throttle the amount of uh, kind of energy into the muscle fiber that reduces the ATP levels and that then stops us producing contractions. Categorically, that's not happening. Uh, absolutely not happening. Um, every fatigue mechanism is really working to stop that from happening in reality. Yep. I fudged up the um, the part there earlier. Calcium ions remove the binding sites. The ATP uh, is used for the power stroke, right? I haven't covered this one in a while. I haven't talked about this no, one. The, I think the issue is that actually um, ATP is used for pretty much every part of the um, uh, of the crossbreed cycle. So I think ultimately ATP is involved in multiple stages. I think classically it tends to get taught as being one particular stage. Like for example, I've often heard uh, ATP's involvement in the crossbreed cycle taught as it being involved purely in the release process. The release, yep. Absolutely. That's how it's classically taught. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's what's happening at all. I think that it's actually involved in multiple steps. And actually, as a result, um, the crossbreed cycles can get, uh, essentially, if you s sort of starve the supply of ATP, because you've basically got all this ATP sitting there inside the muscle fiber, but you can't get it converting into ADP, phosphate, and energy, because you've maybe got too many phosphates, or you've got uh, kind of... Um, you know, something else happening like acidosis is slowing down the, the, the kind of the crossbreed cycle from occurring. But primarily, it's going to be phosphate accumulation. If you've got phosphate accumulation occurring, you can basically get these um, crossbridges stuck in various different situations on or off um, in various different permutations. So I think actually it's it's a lot more complex than it's classically taught. And I know that it's taught, as you said, just yeah, the, the cla classically taught way is what I was just describing is the yeah, classically absolutely. taught way is that the calcium ions remove the troponin from the binding site, right? It's it's actually that's how that's the classically taught. And then for the power stroke to occur by the mouse and head, it needs an A an ATP does it and then converts to ADP. Yeah, I, I, what I'm saying is I think that it's more complex than that, and I think that we need... No, 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 no. I, I agree. I'm saying, isn't that the classical way that it's taught in the yes, model? Yes, isn't that yes, the classical? Yes. It's like calcium yes. ions release the, the, the bindings, the troponin from the, the binding site um, on actin, and then myosin can then connect, and then yes, the exactly. ATP is used yes. as the energy yes. for the power stroke, so forth and so on. That's that's the, the classical way that it's taught from, from yeah, energy. Yeah, it's much, much more complex than that. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. That, that generally, when people ask, I still tell them the classical way because I I think there's a multitude of other complexities that are involved, and I think ATP is more involved in the entire contraction process than that because we have a multitude of energy demands that are happening at the contraction process. But that's like the basic bare bones way that it's taught. And if somebody's not trying to get too in depth in the physiology, just kind of understanding the binding site has, does have to the troponin does have to remove from the binding site. Calcium does do that, but there's a multitude of other cellular processes that are going on there from an energy man, demand standpoint. 
trying to stay on track here. So why can't then, what is the limiter? I'm playing devil's advocate here. So why can't somebody go run a all out 100 meter sprint and then just keep doing that if ATP is not the limiting factor? Well, because of all the fatigue mechanisms, I mean that—that's what fatigue mechanisms are doing. I mean, they're—they're they're, they're preventing us from being able to, you know, repeat activities at the same level of exercise performance as previously described. I mean, right. literally, that's in the definition. Fatigue is a one of the ones we didn't even cover. Is, in yeah. performance. So one of the ones that we didn't even cover. There's even more. So there's the also the release of pro-inflammatory cytokines that happen uh, within the training session and after too. Well, that, that sits within the supraspinal central yeah, nervous the system. Yeah, supraspinal exactly. I mean, that I so what I was getting at there's examples. so there's so there's a multitude of fatiguing mechanisms that happen in in the workout. And I think what it gets confused here is like people talk about those as being the reason why failure occurred when those are just mechanisms that are reducing um, our ability to tolerate more effort. I think what it comes down to is if, 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 if we want to just make it super simple, if fatigue mechanisms are causing tasks, I mean, technically, obviously, if we describe, you know, kind of supraspinal fatigue as a fatigue mechanism, then, but technically, if these fatigue mechanisms are causing us to reach task failure, then, you know, how are they doing that ultimately? And the, the the way you end up having to describe it is to say, which is what is commonly done, is that the muscle can no longer produce the force necessary in order to lift the weight. That's just simply not true. And that's where we kind of get this disconnect between the classical explanation of how fatigue mechanisms are causing task failure and how task failure is actually happening, which is that we're reaching our maximum tolerable perception of effort. Because if we say that it's the muscle that can't produce the necessary force to lift the weight, then we're saying, well, okay, well then how do I have a voluntary activation deficit? <laughs> so if I've got a voluntary activation deficit at the point when you're telling me the muscle can't lift the weight, well then all I have to do is increase the level of um, central motor current that I'm sending to the muscle and suddenly I'll be able to do more repetitions. Well, yeah, I mean, that's how it works. So the problem is not the fact that the muscle can't lift the weight. The problem is that we're not prepared to increase our level of effort beyond a certain point. Absolutely. Okay. What was the one I had in the bullet points? Okay. So I was going to say, what does this mean for training variables? Um, can we, But I like this one better. You had one here. Can we adapt to reduce the safety margin that the brain creates? So I, I think that what that kind of that comment is saying is, Part of what's going on there is, in fact, that the brain, we reduce our maximal tolerable perception of effort because the brain, these, it's almost like you said, a protective mechanism to say, um, I don't want to incur injury or this is as much as I can tolerate safely or as much as I feel like I want to be able to do. So is there a way you can kind of remove that so we can get more motor in your So, yeah, I mean, as we were just literally just saying a moment ago, the, the point at which we re reach Ta uh, task failure or failure in a set is because we are uh, hitting a, a point where we've reached our maximum tolerable perception of effort. But that maximum tolerable perception of effort will correspond to a level of central motor command that is not actually fully activating the muscle. The brain is leaving this margin of error, this safety margin, this what we call technically a voluntary activation deficit. Mm -hmm. It's a um, muscle fibers that are simply not being activated because the central motor command is not high enough. Now, why does the brain do that? Well, yeah, it probably is a safety mechanism. Um, can we adapt to 
actually increase it? Well, yes, this is a basic mechanism of strength gains. It's called an increase in motor unit recruitment over time. And we see it happening very, very prominently in beginners. Uh, and it tends to increase very rapidly over the first three to six months of training. Um, how it increases after that is not so well understood. It does seem to increase numerically, whether it actually appears to be statistically significant or not, not really sure, but it definitely does seem to increase numerically after that. And obviously it is therefore an adaptation. I mean, that, we get, that we get, that's what longer we train, the better we get at motor unit recruitment. Generally speaking, yes. And there's also, you know, temporary changes that we can introduce. So if we um, actually, you know, experience high levels of motivation immediately prior to doing a set, we can increase the level of performance that we achieve. And it's most likely because we're increasing the level of voluntary activation. So ultimately, there's this kind of temporary things we can do, and there's, there's this adaption kind of that we can achieve over time. Um, now, there's also adaptions we can achieve in other um, kind of uh, related areas. For example, if I'm doing light load training to failure and I'm accumulating a lot of metabolites, creating a lot of pain as a result of that, the, the, the feeling in the muscles is painful, then I can actually adapt to tolerate that better as well. Yeah. Um, now, this is where people get very excited and they, they hear me say this and they go, oh, that means that's fantastic. I can now train with light loads and I, and I can say that it's the same as heavy loads. Well, within that same individual, no, it's not. Um, because yes, you can get better at tolerating that, that painful sensation, but you're still going to get a better result in terms of motor recruitment if you switch to a heavier load. So that I'm not interrupting you too much. I, I think <laughs> it's a little bit like the repeated bout effect, right? This is kind of how I view these things. It's, there's always a point where you're like, yes, you're going to get some adaptations to tolerate this, but the degree of them are always going to be somewhat limited. With the repeated bout effect, you're going to have some fiber type shifting so that we have some of those faster fiber types go, you know what, I need to become a little bit more protective, so I need to become a little bit more hybrid type, so I'm a little bit more oxidative and going to protect myself against future bouts of that muscle damage stuff. No different than... When we talk about I can tolerate, it's like stretch tolerance, right? Like it increases, but the degree of which is going to be very individualistic. And the other thing is, so it's why some people can become very flexible very easily. And I think these are genetic components, right? Nobody ever wants to talk about this. Everybody thinks we're all come from the same mom and dad. But some people are super flexible and they're super flexible very naturally. And then other people can stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch. And they only get to a certain degree because their stretch tolerance just is not doesn't improve a whole lot, right? Everybody's stretch tolerance is going to improve a little bit. It's the same thing with metabolite accumulation or something even like VO2 max or lactate thresholds or any of that kind of stuff. There's going to be degrees from an individual standpoint where we're going to create adaptations where we can tolerate more stress, but they all come with ceilings and those are individual specific. So some people, as they perform higher repetition sets, sure, they might get to where they can tolerate those better, but we're, I think the magnitude is small. I did no different than the magnitude for the repeated bout effect. It's a con there's a continued repeated bout effect. But if you look at any of the adaptations that occur after the first eccentric contractions or the first workout, whatever you're doing, the continued adaptations are relatively small. They're minor. So if you're doing high repetition sets after maybe a couple of workouts, you get a little bit, you become a little more accustomed to those 12 or 15 rep sets. But I just don't think it improves enough. That you're going to be like, oh, I go from where I can't tolerate high repetition sets to where I tolerate them super well. Now I'm amazing at them. I can do 15, 20 reps. I think if anything, what happens is there's probably some other interference mechanisms that you may get better at. For example, if somebody gets in a little bit better shape cardiovascular wise and say, I can now tolerate a 15 rep set better. But this doesn't have anything necessarily to do with the fact that 
um, now that you're like you're more adaptated, other than the fact that you can simply breathe better when it comes to rep ten or rep twelve, and now you don't. It doesn't feel like, in other words, at that point, the maximal tolerable perception of effort um, has now increased a little bit because the cardiovascular demand has lessened. So there's some things that happen there that can improve those situations. But I always come back to ask people this. So why not just choose a rep range and a load that doesn't even include those things and you just bypass them all together and you actually don't even need to train to true muscular, esoteric, eccentric, uh, existential failure each time in order to get the, the maximum amount of effort. So that's that's kind of my thing is like when we start, when you and I, when we have these conversations about adaptations that occur, Anytime that you and I have looked at them or we send them to each other, where the magnitude of them shrink pretty significantly after, say, you know, the first bout. Cardiovascular-wise, probably be different, but you can get in better cardiovascular shape pretty easy by, you know, walking at a fast pace a few times a week, whatever, you know, is happening there. But for the most part, most of these mechanisms, they have limiting amounts of adaptations that occur. Yeah, I mean, um, just picking up on the sort of repeat about effect, that that is basically uh, improving our um, fatigue resistance, yep. um, specifically to uh, calcium on accumulation. So um, that it's a fatigue resistance adaption. Now, that's a really great analogy or, or kind of a, a comparison with the uh, one that I mentioned, which was basically tolerating supraspinal CNS fatigue better uh, because the muscles are creating that pen- painful sensation from metabolite accumulation. Well, both of those are fatigue resistance adaptions. Both of yes. them are going to occur for very brief very brief periods of time. Repeat about effect probably is more kind of dramatic in the way that it kind of all occurs after workout one. And then, yep. as you said, the multiple or continued repeat about effect is very, very small in comparison. It's really an 80-20 going on there. Um, in terms of the um, kind of effect of training with light loads, it probably is a more gradual effect, um, but we haven't really got amazing data. Or something data. like as one study actually. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Something like a, a improving like your lactate thresholds or something that would be something that would occur kind of over a longer period of time uh, in your like endurance type work and that kind of stuff. That you Certainly in comparison yeah. with the repeat about effect and the calcium amylate fatigue mechanism. And also the other um, example that you gave of, 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 of flexibility and stretch tolerance improving. I mean, stretch tolerance is an absolutely amazing analogy or a kind of similar kind of situation to that increase in motor unit recruitment or central motor command that we can display for a given level of, of, of um uh, kind of uh, perceived effort because it literally is doing the same thing. What we're saying is we're reaching a greater range of motion for our current. Because obviously you have to be aware that when we're measuring perceptions of effort, they're always on a zero to 10 scale. So we can't kind of like say that I'm now at 11. This isn't like, you know, sort of, um, you know, dialing it up to 11. That, no, that's and, that's and the other so, type of failure, Pat, beyond failure. <laughs> So we're, we're always kind of reaching a level of that so comes up too. perceived effort is always scaled up to ten, and we can't when we ch- if we're changing it, we're not really no, sure exactly no, how it is we're no. changing that over time. So stretch tolerance is a great analogy for the increase in central motor command. Have you not not ever seen spine? This is spinal tap. I've seen it. Yes. Oh, Corey, of course you've seen it. Well, this one goes to eleven. So if you train, if you train beyond failure, doesn't that take you to eleven? <laughs> So that's actually a kind of a separate a separate concept, and I think it, we no, can. Well, let's, I want to get to that too, it. because let's we're going to talk about the different kinds, different kinds, yeah, different kinds of failure. So we kind of covered the fatigue stuff. We've gone over ATP. We've gone over the fact that we we do have some adaptations that occur to kind of some of those fatigue uh, interference mechanisms and that kind of stuff. 
all of which kind of leads us into this discussion. Um, so what is the definition of failure? So we spent all this time kind of laying the groundwork to literally get to the main question of what this podcast is. What is the definition of failure? And as I said, most people actually got this right. We've said it multiple times at this point, so it's not like a... So the definition of hitting task failure... So well, let, let me give a little bit more background before we, before right. we jump into this, because okay. um, there's, there's, there's basically a, a, a kind of a practical definition of failure, and then there's a more mechanistic definition of failure. And I think um, what you were talking about with your, your uh, followers was more around the mechanistic side. I think there's a practical definition, which is actually very, very simple. There's a mechanistic definition, which is relatively straightforward as well. But they're actually two sides of the same coin. And it's helpful just to consider both of them. Um, but also, uh, I think I'd like to just give a very, very little bit of, of, of history to the uh, discussion, which is that fatigue researchers have been talking about um, failure in specific tasks for a very long period of time mm -hmm. probably for a lot longer than hypertrophy researchers have been talking about muscular failure and what's, what's funny i'm interrupting you again what's funny is you and i have talked about the fact that we've gone back through research and all the research that we talk about is has been there for decades and if you go back through any of the fatigue research they don't have the same confusion that the hypertrophy people have about this no. particular topic they're and very clear they understand the, they the task very failure very well where it's really weird that this is such an important topic in hypertrophy and it seems to be completely misunderstood but if you get into the fatigue mechanism and the fatigue research they understand task failure really clearly they do and i think it's really hard to get away from the conclusion that the hypertrophy researchers that are predominating the space just simply haven't gone and read that data they haven't read those commentaries they haven't read the, the actual uh, studies that have been done in this in this uh, regard and so actually if they just simply adopted task failure which is what the fatigue physiologists are using they'd have no problems at all and what task failure basically does is give us a practical definition which is very simply that we can no longer continue performing the task that's the practical definition so i've been given a task to do i can no longer continue doing that task. okay now, chris so here here we go no no, no I, i'm not gonna play i'm gonna play the other person here so i'm doing a set of leg extensions and i'm do and i go to eight reps and that eighth rep is like a grinder barely get it i get it to the very top is task failure not the ninth rep where i can't get the full repetition you tell me which one which one is failure is failure when was failure achieved when did I have to try for the next rep? So I only I got eight full reps. I'm going to try the ninth rep. I only get halfway up. Where was failure? Where was task failure? <laughs> I, I'm I'm one of those people that would say it doesn't really matter because you're dealing with two two situations that are so close to each other to be almost indistinguishable. But does somebody um, need to try to know they hit failure, task failure? Does somebody need to try that next rep? I think generally in research, they would be encouraged to do so. So if somebody's performing a task, they wouldn't, uh, and if they complete a repetition, uh, they would be encouraged to try the next repetition in order to assess whether they could complete it. Does that mean that we're going to do that in practical circumstances in, in strength training? Probably not. Um, I certainly don't. I don't think it's necessary I, I think that that's a super important distinction between somebody who's been training for a few months and somebody's been training for say 20 or 30 years. So I know when I'm not going to get another rep. Nobody can tell me 
I've been training for more than three decades. I, I know in another another full repetition or, or is not there. I, then I'm not going to achieve it. I know what one RIR is or two RIR is. I know when like this is going to be like this is the that, that last rep, that grindy rep. I'm not going to get another full repetition rep or we say full repetition range of motion or whatever uh, range of motion I have designated as this is standardized for for the for the movement I'm doing right. So I know when another one's I'm not capable of it. So what happens? What happens when somebody say they start breaking form? So, so do, this is okay. this is exactly why I started with because we're going to use this uh, information that I've just been explaining. The fact that task failure is basically being in, unable to complete the task that I've been set. Now, the mechanistic side of it, which is what you were talking about with your um, followers, is more about the idea of um, why do we reach that point? Well, we reach it, as we've been describing in great detail, because we've reached our maximum tolerable perception of effort. So these are two sides of the same coin. We've got the what is the definition, which is we are no longer able to complete the task as it has been specified. And the second side of the task is, the second side of the concept is then, you know, how does it happen? Well, continuing with our kind of practical definition, if we change the task, we're no longer performing the task. So ex when people... No, that's ex exactly. You and I have actually never had this conversation. But this is very, very simple, really. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, so to me, when you standardize how you're performing something and then you can't perform it in that standardized way anymore, that you're not be able to continue to perform the task, whether we're talking about joint angle or we're talking about how you're doing the movement or whatever. If you're having to change the standard in which you were performing it, and now you've changed that, you've already hit task failure, in my opinion. So let me unpick this um, and, and kind of give people who are listening a little bit more context to understand what's going on here, because I think this is one of those areas that people get really confused about, but it's actually very, very straightforward. If I'm doing a task, that is requiring me to uh, use a very specific form uh, technique and I get close to task failure and I basically cannot do another repetition without changing my form. And basically, and, and that means I've now moved outside the acceptable parameters of what I've said is my task. Then I've just hit failure. Yes. If I am finding that I can't do those grindy kind of reps at the end of that set with that form, with then what got there is a stability problem you've actually picked an exercise that is a stability uh limited okay once exercise. again this is pretty wild i was having I mean, this, this is very very easy i was <laughs> having my convert this conversation in my head yesterday thinking about this prior to the podcast about stuff we were going to cover and i thought i don't really have those problems anymore because i don't pick unstable exercises Correct. so it's Correct. really weird that you bring yes. that up because if you use stable exercises, you'll never run into this issue. No, you don't. That's really weird that you brought that up. I promised all our listeners we have not talked about this. I was thinking yesterday. So you take the most common example of stuff like, say, squats or deadlifts, right? And, you know, barbell squats or deadlifts. But and then somebody's like. pick a biceps curl exercise, for somebody who doesn't weigh very much, um, like me, then a right. biceps curl exercise with a decent amount of weight is going to throw you around quite quite a lot if you're using a lot, yes. Uh, you know, kind of a reasonable or amount. Even of weight. like a, a heavy dumbbell lateral, the where you're standing, right? Yeah, anything right, yeah, that requires right. that any anything that requires. When you and I talk about this, you always look at me and you go, "But why would you choose that exercise?" Why would you you I do I, every time. Exactly. Every time you say exercise, I'm like, yeah, "What are you talking we're about?" Why would you do that? Just, I'm like, Chris is just going to say this. He's going to be like, "But why would you choose that when you could just choose something stable where you're not having to fight the load, right?" So yeah, that's kind of a 
that's something I thought in my head the other day when I was thinking about when people always ask this question and it's kind of become almost foreign to me now because I think to myself, I don't know because I don't perform unstable exercises anymore. Everything that I do almost, there's almost no way to break quote unquote form or execution because everything I do is very stable. So if I'm doing an exercise, I'm not having to rely on stability issues. So what you described there is exactly that. It's when the stability issue breaks down in the squat and then people are having to compromise their mechanics because they can no longer hold a specific joint angle range of motion, position, whatever. But that is because the stability component has now snuck in and is compromising you holding that or executing in that same form. But I actually- just- the actual definitions that we had earlier are still exactly the same. Yes. We still failed to complete the task as it has been specified. And the second side of it is that we've reached our maximum tolerable perception of effort in terms of motor unit recruitment, whether that's related to, because remember, recruitment is going to multiple places. So if we're right. suddenly having to use a lot of recruitment to, to activate stabilizing muscles as well as our... It's taken away from what you're trying to load. from what we're trying to load. But that doesn't change what's happening it doesn't change the definition of failure it doesn't change the way that failure is happening failure is still happening no, no, that's called form more. failure chris and you know then you get the list we have a list of failures <laughs> that's called that's called form failure but it's is still that... exactly the same it's still task failure and it's still happening no for the it's same form reasons. failure chris did have you have you not read Just all to of be the literature to online here, Paul is trying to no. troll me here and he's not I, actually believing I, what well, he's i saying. said that before the thing i'm going to troll you with these different types of failures because i just like <laughs> i want to get you like somewhat riled up about this but that's actually called form failure chris and if, if you'd watched any youtube or you had gone on any social media stuff to understand you don't understand clearly if you break form in a squat what what just happened what did you just fail you failed your form son so you don't that's called that's called form failure Task failure is different. I, I doubt the people who say form failure even know what task failure is or where it's come from. But <laughs> task failure basically is failing to complete the task as described. If that fails because other muscles are no longer capable of producing the necessary uh, stability as in force that produces stability in order if to... I can't, if I cannot maintain the same degree of stability, guess what happened? Task failure happened, right? Exactly. So uh, I mean, if, ultimately, if I had to, this is no different. Change, if I had to change, and that's why I talk a lot about when people say why this or why that. I'm like, because if I'm going to actually, I think the part you and I actually haven't touched on yet that's important why this happened is that it's important to standardize these things for, for progressive overload. So to understand if I'm actually properly progressively overloading the movements I'm doing, then we have to standardize things like range of motion, execution, so forth and so on, right? There has to be, in other words, how do I know if something's working without progressive overload? And how do I know if I'm progressively overloading, if I'm not standardizing the execution, the biomechanics, the the way that I'm performing the the exercise in general, if I start to change things, rest time between sets, the 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 tempo, if I'm starting to change all of these things, then all of that could factor into me getting more or less repetitions or more or less weight over the workouts. But if I'm doing a good job of standardizing these things, then I get the idea of whether progressive overload is happening or not. And that's kind of what I come back and people say, well, why this or why that? I'm like, well, you need to be able to standardize your ROM in an exercise as best you can. It doesn't have to be perfect, but as best you can in order to realize, hey, is progressive overload occurring? Because if I start changing all of these different variables, then I'm not sure. So when it comes back to form failure, people say, well, if should you continue doing a squat even when you can't hold a particular position? 
So that's kind of the discussion, right? Can I, should I continue doing the squat if I can't hold, like, let's say if I'm start doing a more quad dominant squat where I have a more upright position, uh, where I have more knee flexion with a longer, longer external moment arm uh, to the knee. So I'm trying to load the quads more. And then as the set progresses, and I have the stability issue, which happens with everybody for the most part, unless they, they're built like Tom Platts and have three inch long femurs. As I progress through 15, 18, 20 reps or whatever in the squat, if I'm doing something like that, what happens is t- people generally start to lean more. So they start to make it kind of a more hip extensor dominant exercise. So where's kind of that crossover for that person? They're asking, I don't squat anymore, but this is for people who are listening to do squat and do stuff like that. Where's that crossover point? Don't they have to determine and kind of standardize in their own mind, like where, hey, I know this this repetition was not up to standard in terms of execution? Well, the squat is a great example because we're seeing that limiting factor essentially um, being that the person is changing their stance, they're changing their, their kind of um, way in which they're performing the exercise to bring in more hip extensors and and limit the kind of or reduce not limit and reduce the involvement to the knee extensors and they're making things easier for themselves in that way so essentially what we're saying is that if we were compelled to stay in the same uh, movement pattern we probably wouldn't be able to complete the lift so we've reached task failure as if, if the task was described in that very very strict form way but if we want to uh, change that form very slightly, we can continue performing repetitions. The same uh, thing is happening if you're, as I said, those biceps curls I explained earlier. If you're doing biceps curls and you start to just give a little bit of lean, or okay, you start so where's, to move that's a really slightly. great. That's probably a slightly better example because maybe we all do barbell curls. Where does the barbell curl go? Where do we hit task failure when now it's turning from a barbell curl into a cheek curl? The, 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 the way to visualize what's happening with that transition from a strict curl to a cheat curl is basically it's a mechanical drop set. Mm-hmm. That's what you're doing. Basically, you are saying, I'm now going to make the exercise very slightly easier so that I can perform additional repetitions. Well, the point is that you, you basically, if you had not, if you, if you'd not done that, you'd have basically reached task failure at the point before you started to move or maybe kind of just after the point when you start because that's the really problematic issue with form failure or task failure in a situation where we've got the ability Isn't to the make things easier for us starting to turn their barbell curl into a cheat curl aren't they experiencing fatigue and then the whole reason why they start cheating is to re- to kind of reduce that maximal tolerable perception of effort that's what i'm trying to get people to understand here so they're what we're doing to is we're making that. the exercise slightly easier slightly than the easier. specified version yes. so that we can continue performing so the the problem is that the crossover point is not actually perfect so most people aren't reaching technical failure and that or, or form failure or whatever you want to call it they're not reaching failure in the specified form and then changing to make it easier which would be what a, a true mechanical drop set would look like they're yeah. kind of changing just before really? so that they can kind of essentially just carry on that's some real world shit right there so it they don't really they don't really hit task failure in like that strictest sense what generally happens when somebody's doing a curl is you can kind of watch this with a curl i don't know why we didn't think of this as a this is a really perfect example as somebody starts to struggle in the curl barbell curls are standing there what you'll see is a little bit of cheating will start to creep in more and more 
right towards the end. So by the end, they're kind of doing that hip flexion to hip extension motion and they're chinning it up. But it crept in several repetitions before that because what you're saying is true. It's like spot on. They're doing kind of a drop set here that's going on. So they're making the exercise a little bit easier every repetition from on out. That's a really good example of what's happening there is that they're reducing that tolerable perception of effort, right? That's what's actually happening. They're reducing that maximal tolerable perception of effort. Each repetition, because they know, ooh, this one's harder than the last one. So let me make it a little bit easier this time. So they use a little bit more cheating, a little bit more momentum each each repetition there. And that's what they, that's what happens. And as you said, they're kind of turning it into a mechanical drop set. So the whole, I'm starting off strict, and then I get to where I'm a little more cheaty is really no different than just doing either, like you said, a mechanical drop set or just a drop set in general where you lower the load but kept the form strict. Each time, and I, I think I, post, I posted this yesterday on my, I posted about drop sets. So what happens is when you hit task failure and you reduce the load, you just basically reduce the load again to something that allows you to continue because your perception of effort is now also lower than it was with that with the previous load. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it, this this is this is kind of really um, the subtleties of 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 of, um, of 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 the stability problem. But I think ultimately, what I would say about these these scenarios, these kind of squats, biceps curls, um, other scenarios where we've got an unstable uh, environment, is that the the task failure is almost certainly occurring because we can't perform the combined task requirement of simultaneously stabilizing ourselves in that position while doing the exercise that we're trying to do. Um, and that is causing us to reach a point where we're um, changing the task, perhaps subconsciously or, 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 or even consciously, in order to make it easier for ourselves. If we've got somebody standing there shouting at us every time we start to adjust our technique, then the chances are we might be able to get relatively close to the point where maybe we are achieving task failure in a way that's putting more uh, of the contribution requirement onto the target muscle. But even so, it doesn't matter. The point is that task failure is always defined as finishing a task and also not being able to continue performing a task. Um, the underpinning mechanisms of what muscles are contributing to that um, and, and and ultimately, you know, where the fatigue mechanisms are occurring is a separate question. But ultimately, it's always going to be because the uh, maximum perception of effort has been reached. So it, the fatigue mechanisms and where they're located can vary. But ultimately, we're always going to have, we can't complete the task. And secondly, it's occurring because we've reached our maximum perception of effort. Yeah. Okay, so... Now, here we're getting to the, the other part, which is this kind of a segue into that. The definition of failure um, is that can we have different types of failure? So this is the other one that comes up a lot because I'll always hear somebody will start to argue these. We have concentric, eccentric, isometric, esoteric, existential, um, paleolithic. Paleolithic failure, that's yeah. a good one. That was the one I was trying to think of earlier. Um, like, uh, you can come up uh, mathematical, I, whatever. But basically, when you have these conversations with people online, yeah, the ones that we kind of covered, and we, we did, you did have technical failure on here. So that would be this technical failure would be the storm. So what they call like form failure, right? So and we you had, had, you had the of idea of exhaustion that you were talking about as well. So you said. Exhaust, that that's, no, Chris, that's true muscular failure. True muscular 
Actually, I think the idea behind some people were close. They were saying true muscular failure is where you didn't, you had the least amount of interference mechanisms so that the only thing that was failing, you were failing was because the muscles couldn't produce force anymore. That is, that's the one, I think that you saw that too. I think you've seen that one expressed that way too, is true muscular failure is when you don't have an interference like a cardiovascular metabolite, pain, whatever, that's interfering with you getting to muscular failure and then what's happening with muscular failure is that whatever fibers are active can just no longer produce force and that's why you can't move the load that's really that's the one online that's one i hear is like the reason why you hit true muscular failure or muscular failure is when muscles that's why it's called muscular failure cannot exactly this force. is why hypertrophy researchers have done such a bad job in actually explaining what's going on because if, if 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 muscular failure was happening at a local level then we wouldn't have a voluntary activation deficit it wouldn't exist and yet they do so ultimately you know there isn't i, I guess i was just kind of interested in that idea of, uh, of of kind of failure being an exhaustion of um the muscle fibers capability to produce force i think really the way it was being visualized was like you know literally couldn't move the limb is that is that correct yes so the reason why I think the the TikTok kids, when they talk to me, they're like, I, they'll say stuff like, I find drop sets allow me to get to failure better. And that is because they associate what I think, what they're associating failure with is like this, like I can't move anymore. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's this like temporary, almost like paralysis thing where it's like, I've, I've gone, I can't get another rep and then I drop it and then I go again and I can't get another rep with that load and then I drop it and can't get another rep with that load. And then there, there comes like a place where like a feeling of like, yeah, I have like so much metabolite accumulation. I have this such a high degree of burning sensation, all that stuff going on that I, you know, I can't like my triceps are throbbing or my pecs are throbbing or whatever is going on. And there's like this association of like almost because I can't move my arms or legs or whatever, that that's failure. There's like this sense of like a degree of almost immobilization is what defines failure, right? Like instead of, I just can't do the task anymore. Well, technically what's happening there is that we are experiencing multiple um, task failure points yes. but with progressively lighter and lighter loads, which is obviously what drop sets are. Right. Um, the, the, the point is that uh, every time we reach that additional failure point we're doing so in a state of greater fatigue um, and ultimately we're getting to a point where the task that we're requiring of ourselves is to physically move our limb in the gym conditions but without any weight attached to it so they're saying i'm getting to a point where i can't even lift my arm or you know drag myself <laughs> up off the ground or whatever technically but, there there's there would be some degree that you could keep moving whether it's reducing the range of motion well, the or point that i was good to make there was that even if that were true that we would say we're now going to redefine failure as getting to the point of a level of fatigue that you can't even move under earth gravity that technically still wouldn't apply if you were in the international space station you could actually then move that <laughs> exactly you see so we've we've just we've just identified a really important point there that even when they are trying to strive after this this kind of like absolute because they're looking for an absolute, absolute failure they're looking for an absolute that's what yes. they're looking for i can in, immediately teleport them to the i can't obviously but if i were able to teleport yes, them to put the them in space outer station, space then <laughs> probably not the worst place for them to be honest <laughs> but the the issue is that in that scenario they would actually now be able to actually move their limbs because obviously we're you know in a situation where gravity is not so gravity. Um, 
Right. Well, there is. There's plenty of gravity. It's just that we're falling at the same kind of uh, <laughs> rate around the Earth so that the gravity doesn't seem to apply to us in that particular scenario. But they can then obviously use their limbs because they appear to be weightless. Now, essentially, we're still operating in the same per uh, paradigm that we've been operating in. They're just reaching multiple task failures with progressively increasing uh, task demands of uh, creating more and more fatigue until they get to a point which they perceive as being some kind of unique failure point. But it's not. It's exactly the same. Right. So, what was the other one here? So okay, got, concentric failure. Yeah, okay, contraction let's, let's, mode. Let's, contraction let's, mode. Let's, contraction mode. So, concentric failure. Concentric when you can't lift the weight anymore. Why did that happen? Well, we've basically the whole podcast we've been doing so far has been talking about the idea of, of failure in a are. concentric. I've been doing this for a long time, Chris. I think so, so concentric is actually what we've been talking about. It's the point when you can't okay, lift That's what I was getting at. Concentric is, is you can't lift the weight anymore because maximum possible perception of effort has been reached and we can't get any more motor unit recruitment going. That's pretty much where it's going to end at. And that can happen for a variety of reasons, um, but it all stems to concentric contraction, concentric failure concentric mode contraction failure happens because of maximal tolerable perception of effort. All right. But if you can lift a weight, but you can't lift it anymore, you can still lower it. Can you not? So do Absolutely. we not? Okay. Well then now I'm not at true muscular failure, Chris. Do you know why I'm not at true muscular failure? You think you're so smart, don't you? You think you're Mr. Muscle Physiology, but clearly I can still lower that weight. You know what that means? It that means, means you just change the task. Mean I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not a true muscular failure. No, no, no. What it means is my muscles are still capable of lowering that weight. So still not. I can go to eccentric failure now. What do you think about that, big man? I just did concentric failure, and you're saying I can't lift the weight anymore because I can't get any more motor unit recruitment. Is that what you said for like the last hour and 20 minutes? Is that what you're trying to say? Okay. Well, how about this, buddy? I can lower the weight now many, many times, many what, times, many what times. Of, what was the level of motor unit recruitment in your eccentric phases throughout the entirety of your strength? You tell me. You're, you're Mr. Muscle like probably half of what it was in the concentric phase. No, so, but if I keep lowering it, I'll get to a point where I can't lower it anymore. And then it actually reverses. I can raise it. At no, gravi gravity will always gravity will always apply. So no, what you mean I, is... No, what I'm specific... talking about, I'm going to lower it under a specific like time. So I'm yes. going to lower it under three seconds. Okay. You know what happens then? All the mass. All the mass. I, I watched a bunch of videos on YouTube, and what they said was that you grow more muscle in lowering the weight than lifting the weight. Have you, do you not know about this? It's more anabolic. Did you know lowering the weight is more anabolic than raising the weight? I can think of another adjective. The, the no, issue I'm, here, the issue here. I'm going, no, you phase. let me talk. You talked a whole bunch now. I'm going to talk. I'm going to lower the weight, but I'm going to go to eccentric failure. I went to concentric failure, and I'm going to lower the weight. So now what happens is I lower the weight in three seconds. What I what now eccentric failure is gonna is more anabolic, and I know that because I watched a bunch of videos with doctors, you guys with PhDs and stuff online, and they all said that the anabolic phase where you have get all the muscle growth is when you lower slowly, when you lower slowly. 
So now that I've hit concentric failure and I can't raise that weight anymore, I'm going to lower. So I, you know what? I'll buy into your little thing there where you say maximum tolerable procession of effort. I can't raise anymore because I can't recruit motor units. But what if I lower slowly after that? Because I can still lower it under control. Can I not? Yes, but you've changed the task. So the task in normal strength training is to lift the weight. The task is not about lowering the weight. And the level of recruitment in the lowering phase is really low. So it's really not actually difficult for us to lower a weight after we've lifted it. Um, if you why, then, why can I continue lowering it then? Because the level of recruitment in that task is so low because you're actually stronger on the muscular, muscle fiber level in those lowering But phases. if I keep going... Don't I end up recruiting more muscle fibers each repetition as I lower it? If you continue performing that eccentric lowering task, yeah, you will start to increase motor unit recruitment. And ah. that, will, that will then, it's like a drop set. It's like, exactly like a drop set. So you're basically picking an easier task to do after your initial hard task, and you're continuing to do that second set. So it's exactly the same thing as a so drop it, set. What you're saying is, if I continue to lower, I'll get past that motor unit recruitment deficit you talked about before with that maximal tolerable perception of effort thing. So if I'm, if I know you always reach the same, no, no, no. I used up all my motor unit recruitment the first time on the concentric contractions. Now I do the eccentric contractions, but that's not even the case where, which contraction mode am I strongest in? The muscle fibers are strongest in the eccentric phase because they've got tight in working as well as cross bridges. So you're going to have higher force production per fiber. As you progress through the task and you become fatigued, you'll find that you increase recruitment. I mean, um, you'd have to do an absolute ton of repetitions to get anywhere close to a high level of motor unit recruitment in that situation. But, you know, it, it would technically track the same kind of trajectory. But you're basically doing a drop set because you've positioned a an exercise type after your first exercise that's easier than the first one. So there's no difference between eccentric failure and concentric failure. You stop being able to lower the weight under control um, in exactly this, for exactly the same reasons that you stop being able to lift the weight under control. Or actually, you know, control has probably got nothing to do with it in that situation. But um, the essential thing is that it's exactly the same. Task failure is the same in both situations. What's funny about what's funny now I'm gonna go back to actually being me. What's funny about that is is that anytime these guys talked about eccentric failure, I always thought, well, does, did gravity stop working or something? You're no, you can't, you can't. They're like, well, I can't control the weight. It has to be a task. Like, it has to be a task it has, specified. Okay, so, it has to be a certain number of seconds. Okay, so even if you're first off, even if you're lowering the weight under control, slow control, you and I both agreed, like probably two or three second eccentrics are where you're going to want to be for for lowering to get you know some of that free tension we've talked about but there's there's kind of a point of diminishing returns benefits that you're going to get out of that and you're always going to have a very low degree of motor unit recruitment and using a load that you can lift even if it's and i think you've said this before and you're like you can't remember where you told somebody you're like look even if you're lifting a one rep max it's you're only going to get at best maybe 50 percent of, of of activation on the lowering phase after that you just you're just going to have a much lower degree of motor unit in the lowering phase because of the detachment rate of actinomycin and because of the fact that you have passive forces that are contributing to help you lower the load so you're going to always have a very low degree of motor unit recruitment low degree of activation on the eccentric phase compared to the concentric phase and i that's kind of where like the everybody 
and I don't say I'm going to take partial blame for this because I've tried to be very clear, but you want to use a, a controlled and slow eccentric to get that flat free tension curve off the eccentric side of the force velocity relationship. But for the most part, it's going to be those fibers that are controlled kind of on the low to moderate end of the high threshold motor unit pool. So it's going to be a lot of fibers you've already kind of gotten maximal hypertrophy that you're going to get out of if you're at that advanced level. So kind of one of the things I think is it's important to really to standardize your eccentric uh, lowering um, phase for there. I think there's more reasons to just hypertrophy. Number one is safety, uh, not training like a jackass um, and, and having a certain degree of control over lowering the, lowering the weight. It helps just kind of standardize your motion because if you're going very fast, I think it becomes a little bit more difficult to standardize your range of motion, your execution, that kind of stuff. So I think there's other factors besides the growth mechanism and that actually lowering a weight to like under control helps you to standardize the ROM, helps you to standardize execution. There's other factors that come into play besides just the muscle growth. Yeah, I mean, this plays back to what you were saying earlier about everything needs to be standardized if we want to achieve progressive overload in a way that is possible to document and be useful in our training as we're as we're going forward i mean everything we're doing has to be standardized really um and i think uh, that applies whether we're training in a very normal way or whether we're introducing some of these ideas where you know maybe people do want to do some extra uh, eccentric um kind of durations well that's i mean that's fine i mean it's just um it has to be Kind of, uh, I, mean, I think people need yeah. to temper their expectations on slow eccentric phases. <laughs> well, that's that's definitely true. But there is a little bit of room for a little bit of wriggle room, I think, on the duration of eccentric phases because as long as it doesn't exceed, you know, four seconds in most situations, it's not going to be that kind of different in terms of the of the number of reps that you're going to get out concentrically because it's not really contributing that much in terms of a fatigue response because the level of recruitment is just too low um, and the types yep. of fatigue aren't really uh, kind of um, building well, in that's that way. The, uh, the other part is right is like it, it's that that's mostly going to be those fibers that are already slightly more oxidative or more oxidative that are going to be um, activated in those those lowering so it's like we're not as worried about the muscle damage concept of like celery centrics but you run into that problem, right? Like the, the body's never going to be like, it doesn't want to grow muscle like per se, like it, it, it's not exactly what it wants to do, which is why it doesn't do it at a very fast rate. But, um, the slow eccentric thing of heating eccent, I think the concept of hitting eccentric failures, blatantly speaking, quite dumb. Like there's, you just, if you're just going to lower weight under specific speed and as we've talked about this whole time generally when we're talking about hitting task failure we are talking about the concentric phase of dynamic repetition so that that leaves us with one phase left and that's isometric failure so i guess the only way i could define as isometric failure is simply being able to hold a specific joint position for a certain period of time that's the only way that i could in my mind think of saying what is isometric failure isometric task failure is that is a, whether let's say we we're doing a preacher curl in a machine and we curl to 90 degrees of flexion of elbow flexion and say so now we're going to hold this position for 10 seconds so we're going to use a load that causes us to where once we get to say 10 seconds or 11 seconds whatever it starts to move downwards into an eccentric motion and that's what we would consider task failure do you, do you feel like that's probably a good like a decent way to describe it 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, we are failing to continue the task that's been specified, which is to hold the weight in a certain position. I mean, this is the issue. Once you start realizing that fatigue physiologists have nailed this concept of task failure decades ago, they understand exactly how this stuff works. They've got a perfectly serviceable paradigm. They understand that fatigue mechanisms individually can vary between the contributions of fatigue mechanisms can vary between tasks. It's really weird. It's It's really weird. The whole, it's very weird because if you get into the fatigue research, this is really clearly outlined. But if you get into the hypertrophy research, they don't even know that it exists. It's like they don't know that it exists. And it's a very, very a weird thing. Yeah. And I've always, I've brought this up a few times in like side conversations with you. Um, is that, you know, one of our favorite people, I won't say the name, but talked about the fact that back in the 70s, they had determined then, specific physiologists determined then that it was mechanical tension that caused muscle growth. And then we spent decades and decades and decades trying to figure out it was everything but except mechanical tension. And he's like, there's research in the seventies that actually made this very clear. It's just mechanical tension and you guys have ignored it this entire time. If you get into the fatigue research, you're going to see the fatigue researchers say, here's the task, do this task. And then they'll, they can determine when that task is done. And then not only that, not only that, but then afterwards they'll say, here's this many hours afterwards. Is the fatigue still present? And we can measure it this way. And then here's a day later, and we're going to measure fatigue this way. Oh, and here's the mechanisms as to why it's still persisting at this time or why it has subsided after this amount of time. Here's the length of the muscle that we were training it at in this specific, specific isometric contraction. Or here's the task that we were having them do repeated over and over again. Here's the outcomes. So you got a couple of decades, you're making the face. You got a couple of decades of fatigue research that actually outlined all of this way better than the hypertrophy research and it's completely ignored is, is that an accurate statement it's it's far worse than that it's like when you read fatigue physiology it's like oh the adults are now in the room <laughs> you know, it's literally that bad you know you read this fatigue physiology and you're like these guys are absolutely nailing this stuff they they have brilliant definitions they know exactly what they're doing there their kind of models are testable repeatable and they're really breaking this stuff down in a way that makes sense and i'm trying to bring a lot of this fatigue physiology into the fitness industry and, and kind of popularize it so people understand how this stuff really works and but when you read hypertrophy research they're talking about fatigue as if it's this mystical kind of magical thing that happens that it's, sometimes that's why i've made so many jokes about systemic fatigue and anytime somebody says systemic fatigue i go endlessly annoying i say what is that i'll always ask them what what do you mean by systemic fatigue and they they literally just mean being tired of like a feeling of lethargic right so i'm like well but fatigue is measurable, and I mean measurable because it's fatigue performance. An fatigue is yes. absolutely an outcome that's always measured. It's, um, it's a change in performance. Uh, now we can measure that performance as strength, as speed. It doesn't really matter. Um, even as a an endurance task, if you wanted to. But they don't know. Uh, when you talk about the mystical, that's the mystical, magical fatigue thing is exactly how I feel like they're describing it. They're like, I'm really tired, so I can't lift the weight anymore. I go, but okay well ultimately though the whole idea of metabolic stress and muscle damage are literally kind of you know fatigue fairies that bring the hypertrophy magic dust and sprinkle it on the muscle i mean they are literally that kind of uh, idea i mean it, it all stems from not understanding the fatigue 
physiology that's been done previously. Um, I mean, ultimately, most fatigue mechanisms are interfering with the hypertrophy process. They're not yes. contributing to it. Uh, and, so it's the other thing that's really wild about the, if you go back, you, I can actually send you this. I think I either I have before or we've talked about it. It used to be thought that fatigue was a type of stimulus that contributed to the hypertrophy research. And when they would go through the hypertrophy side of things, when they would go through the testing, they would say, well, this is causes more fatigue. So this is a better option to use if you want to have muscle growth. And when I read that now, I'm like, what the hell did I just read? It literally is the opposite. It's the opposite of everything that you guys produced in this peer-reviewed research side that fatigue was one of the mechanisms we were trying to actually strive for. A lot of the stuff Kramer used to go over was like the whole, you have to build work capacity, work capacity increased, and then that increased your ability to add muscle. And I'm like, basically your work capacity increased because there were adaptations that occurred that allows you to do more work but none of that has to do all of that has to do with protective mechanisms all of that has to do with fatigue resistant mechanisms ultimately and experiencing fatigue produces fatigue resistance fatigue I resistance mean, not tricky okay not tricky, really i know right so here's the thing i creating fatigue so the body responds by creating fatigue resistant fatigue resistant properties okay that is really like the fact that that has been such a a, a giant leap for people in the hypertrophy side to get their head around is pretty wild. If I have, if I'm doing things that create a tremendous amount of fatigue, the body responds by, that's the muscle damage thing, right? So if I damage the muscle, they said the muscle grows back larger. I'm like, no, it protects against muscle future bouts of muscle damage. Like that, it's like, see, it seems so really basic. Like, oh, we have these either micro tears or the muscle damage, or you have degradation of the microscopic proteins. Well, then the body responds by saying, let me protect against future balance of that occurring. If you have fatigue, the body responds by saying, let me do things that create fatigue resistant properties. The hypertrophy field has had this part backward. Or I don't know if they, they still really consistently have it backwards, but they had it backwards for decades. There's a, um, I think it's an, an antagonist superset study that determined doing like certain movements back to back created more fatigue. Therefore, you should do it that way. Ignoring the fact that if they just did them without the superset aspect, that performance was increased. Ooh, imagine that because you didn't have the central nervous system fatigue mechanism. So a lot of this stuff is present right there. Once you understand the model, you can go back and look through it and you can say, here's where the fatigue exists in this method. And then here's where it doesn't. And then the researchers are weird. They're like, this part produced better performance outcomes. And I'm like, no shit. And then here's the part that didn't produce. But then they will say stuff in the hypertrophy. The old hypertrophy research will say, because this produced more fatigue, this would be a better option for muscle growth. They will literally say that in some of the research. I think there's something almost hard-coded into the exercise scientist um, that says, you know, in order to experience a positive adaption to exercise, we have to experience fatigue. And it's like, well, hang on a minute, that kind of goes back to the fact that exercise science is built on aerobic exercise science. We started out looking at endurance exercise, aerobic activities, and we started trying to understand how things were kind of adapting in response to those exercise bouts. And of course, you know, um, pretty much everything that we need to know about endurance exercise is about improving fatigue resistance in some way, shape or form. And then when you come to kind of consider strength training adaptions, which aren't actually fatigue resistance adaptions at all, <laughs> then you kind of have to break out of that paradigm. And it does seem to be very difficult for 
the kind of exercise science community to do that and move away from understanding, uh, you know, everything through that lens of, you know, I need a fatigue uh, stimulus to create a fatigue resistance adaption. It's like, well, hang on a minute. You're not talking about fatigue resistance adaption anymore. You can separate yourself from that. Just look at the mechanical tension data that's, as you said a minute ago, shown since the 1970s that, you know, this kind of stimulus, independent of a fatigue mechanism being present, is producing, you know, the hypertrophy that we're all kind of talking about. So, Ultimately, I think this this stuff is very easy. It's very annoying how uh, fatigue physiology is is largely ignored in the context of hypertrophy. You, can't, research, you cannot create a hypertrophy physiological model without including the fatigue component. It's impossible. If you don't include all of the fatigue research, you can't have a model. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely my position and we can perhaps do a podcast in a few weeks where we go through, you know, the model or maybe even as we were talking about earlier, kind of do a, a, a kind of a preliminary version where we talk about the main concepts and then do the model. I think yeah, going over, I think there's some important concepts of people and that's, that will be a, like a decent debate because like I said, I put that on my threads and um, somebody kind of popped off about it and that got way more likes than I did and I think it's still com completely wrong and it's a massive misunderstanding. If you are going to present yourself as an educator on muscle physiology, biomechanics, whatever, there are absolutely some principles and mechanisms you need to understand to be able to talk about that from a standpoint of considering yourself either an expert or well-informed or educated or whatever. I think there's I don't understand how we can be in a position now where you can say, if everybody agrees that mechanical tension is the driver and the catalyst for muscle growth, but somebody cannot explain to you what mechanical tension is, how could they be a an expert on hypertrophy? You know what I mean? Like this is I, just like a basic, you know, I just a, I can't even think of a a good analogy at this point to where. Um, how could somebody, you know, consider themselves a, a mechanic if they don't understand how to change the oil in a car? Like, that's a very kind of basic, you know, like, hey, I'm a mechanic. I'm an expert mechanic. I tell you everything you need to know about car engines. And I'm like, change the oil in my car. Well, I don't know how to do that. What do you mean you don't know how to do that? Do you know everything there is to know about car engines? So you certainly you should know how to change the oil. Well, I mean, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to, can you explain to me? Okay, very basic concept even more basic than that can you tell me how to put fuel in my car well no well why not well i mean i just can't but you're a car expert but well, i can't tell you how to do that and i think if you can't explain something as simple when well, i say as simple but if you can't explain mechanical tension how can you present yourself as somebody who's an expert on muscle hypertrophy when you can't explain the one thing that causes it it's kind of wild yeah, I mean, I think education is education is a slightly different process than than kind of simply, um, or not simply, because it's not simple at all. But uh, education of of somebody is, I think, a separate uh, kind of process from sim. Um, again, I'm using the word simply, and I don't want to use the word simply because it implies that I'm denigrating the activity, and I'm not denigrating the activity. Um, educating is different from doing something. So. Um, I think a better analogy would be um, perhaps a high school um, math teacher or something like that, rather than a mechanic, because the high school math teacher has to be able to teach a certain syllabus. They have to be able to understand that syllabus. They have to be able to, you know, uh, kind of um, help people understand that material and help them pass certain exams. Um, you know, if you can't 
explain to someone how calculus works, then maybe um, then being a high school math teacher isn't the right thing for you. Um, so I think a teacher uh, in, in a conventional environment is probably a better analogy than, than, than a mechanic. But um, I see your point. I think ultimately there are certain key things we all need to be able to um, understand and explain to people and be able to do that with, with some degree of, of, of facility. Um, you know, which I'm not demonstrating at the moment, but, um, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, be able to do that with some degree of, 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 of facility. And, um, you know, those are things that we're going to do, a, I think we're going to do a podcast about, basically list off a bunch of really simple physiological concepts that are not contentious, that have been studied for a long time, and that I think really, really uh, critical to understand if you want to be able to explain how hypertrophy works to the uh, kind of uh, the audience that we are all serving. So the, the four that I've listed off in my thread, I feel like that kind of important to understand is um, motor unit recruitment, uh, mechanical tension, fatigue, and the length of tension relationship. I felt like that if you're going to be able to talk about hypertrophy in kind of a, an informed sense, you need to understand all of those things pretty critical. Are there any that you feel like you'd add to that? I mean, I would instinctively, I would structure it slightly differently because i'm i'm kind of probably serving a very slightly different audience most of the time um, and i like to try and be a little bit more uh, academic rather than practical so i can see why you've structured it in that way but i probably wouldn't structure it in that way i'd obviously have motor unit recruitment as as something on there you know straight away i think um in terms of the um in terms of the mechanical tension i would probably leave that out because um uh, I know why you've included it, um, and, and I think it's right to do so for the kind of the audience that you're talking to. But I would simply just go straight to force-velocity relationship, length tension I, I relationship. Was, I thought about, believe it or not, I thought about saying that. But then because the technically, you can't have mechanical tension without, without those two things. Force, you can't have mechanical tension. So actually, I thought about saying it'd be the four ones would be would be motor unit recruitment, the force-velocity relationship, the length attention relationship, and then fatigue. Which, so, incidentally, is what the front cover of my hypertrophy book looks like on Amazon. Oh, okay. <laughs> so those are the, so the, the, the issue with are, fatigue are those, are those is the four? Are those the four? <laughs> it's, a really big, it's a really big concept, and it kind of expands way, way beyond the scope of, you know, almost everybody who's, you know, kind of going to be The reason why I said mechanical tension is because it's, it's the one people talk about but still screw up all the time. Yes, uh, but you know, technically, um, you can't have mechanical tension inside a muscle fiber without the force-velocity relationship or the force length tension relationship. So, if you do both of those, you've done mechanical tension essentially. That's true. Technically, you can. Well, you don't need to talk about the size principle to talk about mechanical tension per se. You can have mechanical tension without actually going all the way up the, the scale and the size principle. But you do need the length tension relationship and you need the force velocity relationship in order to understand how mechanical tension works. So it's, I think what you do is you actually, you break it out in even more subsets of the nuance and then you can then put it together. When, if it, but the reason why I said mechanical tension is because, again, it's talked about the most and the people continue. So they'll say, well, I use this exercise because I get more mechanical tension. I'm like, and every time when I read stuff like that, I'm like, whoa, that, you just don't understand how mechanical tension works. To wrap up this um, podcast, um, so 
basically the what we've talked about for the, almost the last two hours is that there's only one there's really only one kind of failure and that's task failure right yeah i mean let me let me very quickly wrap up a couple of quick points that we did miss um okay. ultim ultimately what we've argued is that task failure is the only type of failure that exists. You can have different contributions of different fatigue mechanisms that are getting you to the point where you are approaching uh, task failure, but ultimately you're always going to fail for the same reason, which is that you're reaching the maximum tolerable perception of effort. The There are some other kind of definitions of failure that have floated around um, in the fitness industry. We've, we've poked fun at some of them, you know, the idea of mechanical failure. I, some of them I don't even know what it is. I mean, I don't know what people people mean no, by that's mechanical actually, failure. I we think you're they right. Mean we did. You know, the same idea as we were saying earlier. Before we do, yeah, before we do the wrap up. Yeah, before I was going to say, before we do the wrap up, there was someone. I don't know what mechanical failure is. No. I think people are basically saying it's the same thing as like this idea of true failure, which is the idea that it's. Um, there's very little interference uh, effects being caused by supraspinal central nervous system fatigue. So ultimately what we're saying is that it's it's being created with heavier loads, longer rest periods. We're not got any of those supraspinal fatigue mechanisms that are getting in the way. And, you know, people want to use those terminologies and that's what they so mean. So mechanical failure and quote unquote true muscular failure, are these like the basically I'm the guessing, bro, inter interchangeable bro terms? I think that mechanical and true and all the other kind of superlatives that people are applying to the word failure, the, the idea is that what they're saying is that it's coming l largely from local fatigue mechanism. I mean, ultimately, we know that failure is never being caused by a local fatigue anymore. mechanism. But, you know, this it's, is it's the, the idea that there's no, there's no kind of burning sensation in the muscle. There's no cardiovascular sensation. There's no kind of other disruptive interference. Isn't that, I, I, I watched a video where our doctor said that that was called, that was cardiovascular failure. But I feel like cardiovascular failure has, there's another term for that. And it's usually something like heart attack or you're in the hospital from that. To me, cardiovascular failure is more pretty significant. That's a serious issue. Do you feel like that? I'm like, I'm not speaking out of term there. Like that's a uh, cardiovascular failure. I feel like that when you terminate a set because of cardio limitations, that it just means that you reach your maximal tolerable perception of effort Correct. due to the cardiovascular problem, right? The cardiovascular sensation was created in the same way that we can have local muscular pain sensations and we can have cardiovascular sensations. They're all going to contribute to perceptions of effort. If those are very large, then they're going to prevent us from reaching a high level of motor unit recruitment for the exact same reasons that we explained earlier. So when people are talking about cardiovascular related muscular failure, ultimately it's still task failure. It's just we've got a big component of that pain or discomfort sensation coming from the heart and lungs in the same way that if people are finding us at discomforting for any other reason i mean ultimately it's all uh coming through that exact same uh, uh, kind of process that we talked about earlier um really i think everything is just very very straightforward once you have this basic framework in place the the key thing to remember is that it's always caused by the maximum tolerable perception of effort okay so one way that i'll make this easy for everybody listening to is that if task failure is always reached due to reaching maximal tolerable perception of effort, then everything else contributes to a type of interference or fatigue mechanism that helps us to get to that maximal tolerable perception of effort. So, yeah, and it can either be a positive or a negative. If we are reaching that maximum tolerable perception of effort because of a ton of cardiovascular 
sensations and a lot of burning sensations in the muscles, that's a negative because it's stopping us actually achieving a high level of recruitment at task failure. Conversely, if it's all localized metabolite, um, you know, then actually that's not a problem because it's not preventing um, recruitment particularly and it's not really causing a reduction in mechanical tension. So what about esoteric? Uh, esoteric and ecumenical and, and ecumenical. existential existential failure is what we get when that we read people trying to argue about muscular tried, failure in line <laughs> someone tried to tell me i reach all the types. they literally said i reach all the types of failure and they listed existential failure i just nobody i still there was a lot of jokes about it but i, I still don't know what ex, uh, existential failure is i feel like that that's probably something to do with failing your parents as a child or you know, like something, there's got to be some, some way that somebody looks in like, ah, you're just not what I thought you were going to be or something like that. <laughs> but um, concentric, basically anytime we talk about task failure, we're talking about concentric. Um, eccentric failure, as you said, generally now if you're like, okay, so if I'm going to lower the weight until I can't lower it under control anymore, then now we've changed what the task is. So now that's not the same as the task that we started with. So if we start off doing barbell curls and we say like task failure is going to be reached when I cannot complete a full range of motion, um, let's use a, a, a machine preacher curl so we don't start talking about the whole like cheating curls and stuff. Again. So I can't reach full range of motion, you know, 120 degrees of elbow flexion, 120, 130 degrees. So when I can't get there, what about when I'm doing partials at that point? Well, it's exactly the same thing. If you change the task, then you've started a new task. Now, um, if that, in normal circumstances, that second task is going to be easier than the first task. So you're basically doing a drop set. Um, I mean, I've all said these situations are always drop sets. And every time that you do this, what you're doing is you're reducing it to something where you're back to, I am doing a task within my tolerable perception of effort range. So if I'm doing, if I do a drop set and I lower the load, I'm now moving a load again that I have, it's basically, I'm, I have not maxed out my maximum tolerable perception of effort. So if I'm using the eighties and I do 80 pound dumbbells for eight reps and I can't do a ninth rep and I drop down to the sixties. Now what's happened is, is I'm, I'm using a lower loading right? Because people say, oh, well, you can produce force again. You could produce force before. <laughs> I know that. But that's what I'm telling you. That is the argument. People come to say, well, now you're using a load because now you only have to produce 60 pounds of force to, to remove that load. Have you not had these arguments? Have you not had these well, people come to you about these arguments? The, the, the issue is that, uh, as we've talked about previously, whenever people ask questions and you're trying to help them understand something our first instinct and i know that this is your first instinct now as well is to try and understand what it is that they don't understand um yeah. in, there, in the question people generally think i'm being an asshole when i ask questions back but what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to understand how they either arrived at that question or what part is it that they're missing exactly and it's it's about just trying to understand what the missing uh, kind of uh, sort of link in the chain is and i think the the issue is that the the words that we're using conventionally in exercise science uh, in the hypertrophy realm of exercise science are unhelpful 
people are hearing the words muscular failure and they're thinking that means the muscle can no longer produce force. And, and that's why we're getting these really strange comments being made by people because they're hearing the words, they're trying to impute meaning into those words and they're coming up with meanings that are they not for, really I relevant. I think that they forget they have a brain. Well, I don't think the hypertrophy research is serving them very well in, 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 in kind of understanding the concepts though, because that's why I think if we talk about task failure, like the fatigue physiologists do, it becomes immediately clear what it is that we're talking about doing. If I say to somebody, you know, you're going to lift these 60 pound dumbbells until task failure, until you can no longer complete that task, they're not going to get the idea in their head that somehow magically the muscle is going to cease immediately at the point of failure, they're going to cease being able to produce force. And then when I pick up a 40 pound and well, I'm magically going to suddenly be able to produce force again. No, that's not how it works. It's like you've been doing a task, you can no longer complete that task because to do so would be to push past your maximum tolerable perception effort and you're going to no longer be able to lift that weight. When you start lifting a lighter weight, you no longer need to have so much recruitment, so you can now increase your maximum, sorry, not increase your maximum tolerable perception effort. You can now no, work you don't, up you don't to again. It, you actually, you are able. You're, 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 you're dropped down lower. You drop down. move back yes, up. You drop down now. Now you can work exactly. back up. You can to work it, back up yes. to the 40 pounders with a maximum tolerable perception of effort in. I drop to the 20s and now I have a room to work back up to maximum tolerable perception And the critical, of critical thing here is that every single time we do that, we are reaching task failure. So we do another drop set, we reach task failure. We do another drop set, we reach task failure. Task failure is identical. No, no, no. Single no, no, no. situation. The no. fatigue. You're not allowed to troll me now because we're finishing this podcast. So as we as we round off the podcast, we're saying that every time you reach task failure, it's the same event. The difference is that the external task is different and the fatigue mechanisms are therefore going to be different because they're going to correspond to that new task that we're doing. If we switch from a normal strength training to um, length and partials, or if we switch from normal strength training to eccentric only, or we do something that shifts the nature of the of the contraction mode very very or, uh, or the range of motion very 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 in a very pronounced way, then we're going to shift the fatigue mechanisms quite dramatically. We're going to shift from um, the normal fatigue mechanisms that occur during strength training to something that's much more calcium ion related in those long partials or in those lengthened partials or in those eccentric onlys because those are the types of fatigue mechanisms that predominate in those situations. Um, if we switch from drop sets, uh, you know, doing a drop set, if we switch from a heavier load to a lighter load, again, we're going to switch from fatigue mechanisms that are slightly different in each case. But fundamentally, task failure is identical in every single every, situation. Every time you do something to make it easier thereafter, whether it's reduce the range of motion or load or whatever, all we've done is we, we can reduce motor unit recruitment requirements and then we can work back up to maximum tolerable perception of effort. And if you exactly. kind of understand, uh, understood that very Oh, I consider that a simple concept. I do. I consider that a simple concept because there are multiple moving parts in there, sure. But that's a simple concept. Each time you change something to make it easier so that you can continue, you're you're asking less motor unit recruitment in those standpoints. And then you increase your ability to work back up again to the maximal tolerable perception of effort. So to wrap these things up, I'm going to go through these and you tell me what they really are. So what is... Um, what is true muscular? This is where I say task failure ten times. <laughs> what is, if you want to, what is? We haven't rehearsed this. What is? What is true muscular failure? I interpret when people say true muscular failure. What I interpret that is as task failure when 
um, there is very little interference mechanism occurring from supraspinal central nervous system fatigue, such as the cardiovascular sensations or the burning sensations in the muscles. So I interpret it as being um, using heavier loads, basically. Okay, so 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 it's but that task, doesn't mean that I'm task failure. Right. Task fa so true muscular failure is task failure without a bunch of fatiguing mechanisms. So it's without uh, a lot of, I, I'm interpreting, I'm trying to interpret what this is being used as. I don't like the term true muscular failure because I think people interpret it in, in a way that, that is muscle, incorrect. Muscles can't produce force anymore. That's what they yeah. say. Right. So uh, what I, when I hear it, what I mean, I'm hearing is people trying to identify a scenario when there's very little interference with the motor unit recruitment signal. That's what I'm hearing. Ooh, you know what? Okay. So true muscular failure is task failure with minimal amounts of fatigue interference. So, at the at the CNS level, I would I would probably go as far as to specify. But again, please don't use this terminology. You know, if you're listening to this, please don't use this terminology because it's no. horrible. It's really unhelpful. But ultimately, what I'm what I'm hearing is that people are trying to get to a point where they're that I'm the, literally in a position in this podcast where I'm hard. trying to play all the people online. That's what I'm having to do, right? So, true muscular failure is essentially task failure. What you and I are trying to do here, so I, as you said, don't go repeat that we said this shit, because that's not the point. When you hear true muscular failure, what most people are, are trying to get at is that yes. you're getting to task failure without metabolite accumulation, without... No, you can't of, do that. What, I, what I'm getting at is that it's, it's the CNS. It's, 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 we're, not, we're reaching task failure, but we've got very little interference effect from the supraspinal CNSD mechanisms like... That's what I said. No, you mentioned metabolites. You can actually have metabolites in the muscle and still not have the threshold necessary to trigger supraspinal CNFT. That's just yes. a technicality. That, yes. It's an yes. important one. What, when, when there is a, you have to get to the threshold of metabolite yes, accumulation to do. where there's yes. afferent feedback getting back Correct. to supraspinal yes. fatigue. Yes, absolutely. Yes. You still have metabolite accumulation that's occurring in the muscle. It's you just can't really not have that. Yeah, you can't really not have that. It's just that we, when we talk about it in the way that it creates an interference mechanism in terms of uh, fatigue, it has reached a threshold that it is now is getting giving afferent feedback to the sensory part of the brain that says, hey, I don't like this. So when people talk about, okay, so true muscular failure, is essentially hitting task failure with the minimal amount of fatiguing mechanisms interfere. You don't like that definition. I feel I like don't, because I think we should focus on the CNS because I, I think it really is about CNS interference rather than the muscle because you can have all kinds of strange okay, things. So, ta so true muscular failure is task failure with minimal amount of central nervous system fatigue. Yes. Fatigue. That's okay. what I'm hearing when I hear okay. people talk about it. What is um, mechanical failure? I really don't think that... I, I think people are interpreting it as the same as true muscular failure. I think that's what I'm hearing when people use that word. I don't like the terminology. I like it even less than I like I true muscular failure as a terminology. I mechanical tension and use it in a bunch of different ways. Like when we've heard mechanical damage and there's no such damn thing as mechanical damage. And I've heard well, that. Well, there isn't a strain injury. I mean, ultimately that's when somebody does mechanical failure. Mechanical. No, no, no. I'm talking about actual muscle strain injury. You can have a tear in a muscle and that's a muscle strain injury. Uh, I think when I hear mechanical failure, I, I kind of assume that means that there has been a, a tear occur. 
um, which is a muscle strain injury. Um, and so I, I don't like the terminology at all, but I think people are trying to get at the same idea as true muscular failure. That's what I'm kind of hearing. I, I think it is the true muscular failure thing where it's like almost like the, the, the muscles cannot contract anymore on their own. It's not anything to do with anything else. So mechanical failure, which, which of course really, we know is I don't, impossible. Don't ask, yes. Cross. It's a lack of like cross bridging that's occurring. So to me, the only way you can kind of tie in what mechanical failure is would be something similar to excitation, contraction, coupling failure. I think. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. In a scenario where you'd manage to create an enormous amount of calcium ion related fatigue, sure, you could, I guess, produce a situation. I where hate most, that term. My, but, my most hated is the mechanical failure thing because I don't know what the hell it means, and I think it's people like technically trying to seem smart. But technically, if you stretch the muscle fiber, you could still make it produce mechanical tension. So it wouldn't. Again, it wouldn't actually be mechanical failure unless you tore the muscle fiber, which is why I really, really don't like. That I just, I like the mechanical failure term the least of all of them. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. I think it's just people trying to sound smart, and I'm like, well, what's mechanical failure? I think everybody on the internet is trying to sound trying smart. To sound so. smart. Okay. <laughs> so, did, honestly, can we just throw out mechanical failure and just be like that's. I would throw all of them out and just use task failure. Yeah, I know. I'm saying, like, but but especially not even trying to remotely define mechanical failure because it's incredibly stupid. So we have mechanical failure, cardiovascular, cardiorespiratory failure, cardiovascular failure. Oh, no. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's being called having a heart attack. It's a fatigue. It's a fatigue type interference mechanism that contributes to getting you to maximal tolerable perception of effort. Correct? I think when people are referring to cardiovascular failure in the context of strength training, what they're saying is that they are breathing so hard that it's creating a big contribution to their maximum tolerable perception of effort. Everything else is the same. So yep. really, it's a subset of um, of the the task failures that are happening with a large number of or a large quantity of interference effects. So it's the kind of the, the polar opposite of true muscular failure, if you like, but with okay. a specific course what is what is eccentric failure where is, is reaching task failure in an eccentric contraction that's been specified i mean all of these are really you know just task failure with a with a flavor to them so but but again if you go to failure where you can't lift the weight anymore and then you just decide you're going to do i'm going to get the weight into position by any means necessary which is another type of failure then and I just continue lowering it under three seconds. Or what if I have like by any means necessary by definition is changing the definition of what you or maybe if you start out with the in the intention of by any means necessary, then fine. You're basically saying well you're doing the repetitions however you feel is appropriate in order to get the weight up. Well, that is your task. You've defined the task as however you want. Yep. I mean, I guess you could use a forklift if you wanted to, but right. I, mean, I, I suppose technically you're doing it on your own. However you define the task is however you define the task. It doesn't matter. Ultimately, though, you're shifting the contributions of the various muscles that you're using, and the fatigue is going to occur in different places. That, all right. That's all that's changing. All right, so is isometric failure. Well, I think we can define that pretty easy. You just yeah, have to standardize whatever, to wherever you're going to hold, a weight you're to gonna hold it. You're going to hold it for how, whatever period of time. I guess remembering that if we then start saying, well, I'm going to do an isometric, and then when the isometric fails, I'm then going to do an eccentric. Well, that's a drop set. Yep. So we do the isometric. People often say to me, well, what do you think about yielding isometrics? I'm like, well, you've done the isometric, and then you start 
to do the Lowering. eccentric. That's two separate That's actually tasks. one. That was a, that's a mentor thing that came up this past year where he had a thing where he said what he's having people do is hold top of a curl in a preacher curl machine and hold it for an isometric for like a, a 15 seconds and then lower for 15 seconds. That was one of the ones that came up and he's like, and I was getting more, and I can do the, my mentor voice. I was getting more, I was seeing more results out of doing those than I was seeing out of anything else. That's a pretty good mentor voice. That's my first time I ever actually it. quite good. Yeah. yeah it's pretty, I was seeing more results out of doing those than I was seeing out of all the other different types of training principles that I was having people do. So I would have them raise the preacher curl and hold it there for a 15-second maximum. And then I would have them lower under 15 seconds. And the amount of growth I was seeing out of people was far beyond what I was seeing from out of people that did any other curl. That was, that's, I have never done a mention impression. i got to say, actually. it's pretty freaking good. It's pretty You, freaking you could good. probably fake a whole load of... I could. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's a mentor thing that was going around for a while. There's a multitude of problems with that. I don't believe he was seeing what he thinks he was saying. Um, but that was essentially hitting an isometric position failure to where you couldn't hold it in the top position anymore and then lowering it under slow. And as you said, we've we have two tasks there. We, yep. have, we have one task of holding it and one task of lowering it under a certain speed. So we're essentially doing, we're doing two different, two different types of tasks and, and i mean and this really kind of we're not going to do this now but this really goes to you know it does it make sense to do two tasks to task failure in close proximity to one another well you know when it comes to rest period durations we know that it doesn't make sense to do that because you're basically starting a second task when you've already got a whole load of team mechanisms that are interfering with the hypertrophy process already present so it doesn't make sense to do these things. Now, everybody wants to kind of create a, a kind of a hypertrophy uh, kind of training method that's, you know, uh, really recognizable and, 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 and impressive and does Unique, great things. Unique, different, stand out. Just as a hint, don't pick one that involves two tasks to task failure, one really close after the next one, because it isn't going to work. You know, because ultimately it's, it's just a, a way of training that isn't actually helpful. Um, but basically, yeah, just recognize that we've got two tasks occurring in that particular yes, situation. Yes, so we have two tasks, two different types of quote-unquote task failure. So if you're doing an isometric and you're holding there uh, for that extended period of time and then you're doing a lowering phase, we have two different types of tasks. Now, there's a multi that's a, that's a whole different podcast. We could actually talk about that. But as soon as somebody describes that to me, my head starts going to the fatigue mechanisms that I'm dealing with in those combining those two different types of task failures i'm sure that's where yours went to you're like uh okay but what about the fact that this one is creating a problem for the other is that where you went to in your head essentially as i described that yeah and i mean we could probably talk for a lot longer about the specific types of fatigue that are present in different types of contraction mode but this is not about this is a podcast not about fatigue it's about failure so ultimately, what we're trying to reiterate by, is that caused by ATP deficits. And I think you've probably reached your capacity I, for podcasting for the day. <laughs> because yeah. Um, so what was the other one that I missed? There was there was one that I missed. Non. Well, I think some people talk about psychological. Psychological uh, Isn't that, that just the, what we talked about this whole time? With basically every single task failure event is psychological because it's always about reaching a maximum tolerable perception of effort. There is no other way of failing that we so, know of. Let me ask you a question then. So if there's a thousand pounds loaded on the bar, why can't you pick it up? 
If it's not, it's not about the muscles producing force. Shouldn't you be able to, to pick up a, a why can't you pick up a thousand pounds? Well, if you test your maximum strength, right. what's happening there is you're going to, let's say you just do a mid five pull in a standard testing apparatus. So you're pulling as hard as you possibly can. There's no, there's no kind of external threat involved of, you know, being squashed by a squat weight or anything like that. You're just right. trying to pull as hard as you possibly can. You yeah. get motivated, you grab the bar and you pull as hard as you possibly can. Right. And you record how much um, force you're producing. You force, say basically yeah. that's your maximum strength. Why yeah. can't you produce a higher force than that? Well, the reason you can't produce a higher force than that is because you've produced your maximum tolerable perception of effort and you've reached your maximum level of motor unit recruitment that corresponds to that maximum perception of effort. If I were to then do a voluntary activation test, I would find that the muscles involved in that exercise were nowhere near their maximum capacities for producing force. And you could have actually produced a higher force, but you didn't. So You know, um, this was pretty funny. It's a very short little clip. Have you, do you know who this kid that's gotten super mega popular overnight named Sam Sulik is? Have you heard of him? Sure. He made a comment in one of his videos and I was blown away. And he said he was talking about doing curls and he's like, and that's, you know, when the muscles can't produce like any force and he stopped and he literally says this, he goes, he goes, actually, he goes, that's not true though. He goes, because like, if I, I hook my biceps up to like a machine, they'd be able to continue to produce way more force than I can. And I, dude, I almost fell out of my effing chair. I was like, holy shit. So despite the fact, right? I know I was blown away. I was like, despite the fact that everybody's like, this kid's just roided up, blah, blah, blah. He's really smart. He's really smart. And it was just a passing clip. And I, he was, it, I was absolutely, I'm like, I was like, I had not heard anybody else even remotely come close to saying that. But he says stuff in his clips here and there where I will be like, Sam actually is very smart. It was, I could not believe he said that. He goes, because that's, you know, when my biceps can't like, you know, they can't produce any more force. And he just stopped himself and goes, well, he goes, let me clarify, because that's not true. Because if somebody hooked me up to like the machine that could do it, it would do a lot more than I can. And I was really impressed. He says he's, he's a very, very um, intelligent, well-articulated, like young dude. I think he's he's a lot smarter than he's given credit for. So, well, um, there's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of of fitness industry influencers that would be capable of of coming. And to I that see people I like he's got a huge, huge following now. He's super mega popular, and I see a lot of people like he's just like oh, some roided out kid or whatever. But if you go and actually listen, uh, he's very intelligent, very, very much knows what he's talking about. So I just thought that that was interesting um, because what you're talking about there is, yeah, if you grab a machine and they measured your force and it said whatever degree of maximum amount of force that you got from ground reaction forces that you could produce, but they hooked you up to a machine and they said they could get way more force production out of your actual muscle fibers than you could produce because it's, the brain is going to be the limiter in the amount of force that you're going to be able to produce. So it's not about the muscles being able to not produce force anymore. As you said, it's about our inability to continue to recruit motor units in that position because we get tapped out on tolerable perception of effort. Yeah, it's literally every single time. There is no other way of reaching failure. You can, you know, people can create all kinds of different elaborate explanations, but it really doesn't work like that it's just literally just the maximum tolerable perception of effort um that every single time
we didn't even get around to using the word corollary discharge in this thing. It took me. I did up. not actually, um, did and I not. normally do because I know that it trolls you horrendously. So um... <laughs> <laughs> I can say it now. It took a couple of years. Corollary discharge, like it, it's basically the shrinking of our corollary discharge. So once we don't have any corollary, the, discharge, the interference mechanisms are yes. The interference we, mechanisms yeah. shrink our corollary discharge. Mm -hmm. So once yeah. that was the question I would ask people when they would say maximum tolerable perception of effort, and I would say, well, what's the corollary discharge? And they had no idea. So they're just repeating. Well, okay, these. for people who are listening now and thinking, okay, so how do I answer Paul's <laughs> questions next time? The, the corollary discharge is just the copy signal from the brain of your central motor command yeah. that is being recorded in the sensory part of your brain. So when we're creating a perception of effort we're doing that because we're copying the central motor command as a corollary discharge um, as a kind of accompanying signal and that secondary accompanying signal is being produced in the sensory part of the brain to produce our perception of effort so if we have a, a high level of central motor command we're always going to have a high level of corollary discharge as we start to experience these negative feelings from other sources whether it's cardiovascular system or rep uh, muscles, to rep to rep sensations they are going to occupy space in the sensory part sensory part of the brain which means we cannot then occupy that same space with the corollary discharge and therefore we're not going to be able to get to as high levels of centromotor command because the centromotor command and the corollary discharge always have to be the same size so yeah basically if we get a load of cardiovascular sensations or metabolites or you know anything else then we're going to start to find that our corollary discharge can't be as high and therefore our central motor command can't be as high therefore our recruitment can't be as high um, and therefore our set will be less effective but that's all about you know fatigue mechanisms it's not about you know really the mechanism of, of failure uh, mechanism of failure is more about um, reaching our maximum tolerable perception of effort however we get there doesn't matter how we get there yep. we're just getting there that's the key thing all right cool. i think we have covered true muscular technical Existential. Mechanical, existential, um, paleolithic failure. Paleolithic um, failure, yes. Paleolithic failure. That was that was the one. Um, in, in this podcast, what I, I hope people get out of this one is that the listen to it will understand that it all comes back to that we terminate the continuation of a set for basically the root same reason, and that there's multiple kind of inroads that can that that bring us to the reason why we stop that. And, but it's always for the same reason that we reach Correct. maximal tolerable perception of effort. The corollary discharge basically shrinks to, to nothing. And it has to be, as you said, the same size as the central sent from the central motor command. So that's how we judge reaching our maximal tolerable perception of effort. Uh, cardio respiratory, uh, meeting thresholds of metabolite accumulation. Um, those are just interference mechanisms that cause us to reach our, our uh, maximal tolerable perception of effort. Uh, we never actually have an issue with ATP uh, being deficit, being being deficient in ATP uh, or energy metabolism. That's actually never an issue as to why we reach failure. What was the other one I missed? Um, what was there? There was another one. Was um, there? We talked about technical and and technical, and, ta technical or form task. failure. Uh, essentially, means that we've now changed the task. That we, we, if we if we change the if, if we go past if we go past technical failure and start doing other stuff where we try to make the weight go up by you know any other method, then yeah, we've kind of changed the task. 
But not only that, but we've also identified that there's a stability limiter, usually within those. But again, we're talking about mechanisms of fatigue that contribute ultimately to us reaching a maximum tolerable perception of effort. But again, task failure is always the same. It's just that we've reached our maximum tolerable perception of effort. Yep. I, I, I wonder how many people are going to now feel like their whole world was shattered because... Oh, oh last one. Pa- how do you go past failure? What's past failure? What well, you've past- just changed the beyond, task. Beyond Every failure. single time people beyond, talk no, about no, this, no. I hit failure. I hit failure. Somebody does helps me with forced reps. You just changed the task. It's a drop set. It's a drop set. You know what's wild is almost everything you do is a drop set. Anytime you do that kind of stuff, it's 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 what we just talked about. You're changing it so that we now are we've made it easier so that we can work back up to a new tolerable perception of effort. Think about it. Yeah. Like every time that you do something, you're making it easier the second time, whether it's a drop set, whether you're resting for so many seconds. You started a new task. Yes. So if you just come back to a very simple formula of hey, I'm doing this task. And I can't do this task anymore. That's that's failure. What's podcast task failure? I think I've reached podcast we, task we, failure. We, we are now at podcast <laughs> task failure. Until next time, that uh, that is uh, me and Chris Beardsley for uh, how to be a failure in life, and uh, we'll see you on in a few weeks. Okay, thanks, Paul. See you later, bud.